Welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking. Motherfuckers, I say that with all affection. It is Mother's Day after all. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard me talk about this, but in Bonobos, the only combination that really doesn't happen, the only sexual union that, sorry, uh, doesn't happen is mother-son, which is very interesting because the mother-son relationship is probably the most important relationship in all of bonobo society. If you don't know what a bonobo is, look that shit up. Get with the program. Uh, anyway, bonobo, very closely related to humans, as closely related as chimps. I won't bore the people who do know with a long explanation, but very relevant to any discussion of the primate origins of human behavior and so on. So anyhow, bonobos, the only combination that doesn't happen is mother-son. Uh, father-daughter happens in captivity where the fathers and the daughters are kept together, but it doesn't really happen in the wild because the, the uh, females leave their natal group, the group they're born into, when they reach sexual maturity. So uh, the father-daughter thing doesn't really happen in a natural setting either. But even in captivity... Where uh, and in the wild, because the sons stay with the mother uh, throughout their lives, you never see mother-son um, sexual interaction. Despite, as I said, the fact that the that is one of the most is probably the most important relationship in all of bonobo society. In fact, as you may know, the female hierarchy, females dominate males in bonobo society in the sense that the females stick together and. Um, keep the males in check. So if a male gets out of hand and starts getting aggressive with a female, all the females will go after him. They won't kill him, um, but they'll, they'll fuck him up a little bit. Um, sometimes literally, because another way that the females keep the males relaxed and uh, non-aggressive is through sex. Uh, as Franz Duvall, the great primatologist put it, Chimps use violence to get sex, and bonobos use sex to avoid violence. There you have it. Two most closely related apes to humans are chimps and bonobos. One uses violence to get sex. The other uses sex to to avoid violence. So, which path are you on? Anyway, it is Mother's Day. And I started off calling you all motherfuckers because I thought that was appropriate because I think that the term motherfucker predates language. I think that's the first taboo because even our bonobo cousins do not fuck their mothers, right? So I think that motherfucker is the essential um, swear word. It's It was a swear word before there were words. All right. That's what I've got to say about Mother's Day. Uh, news for you. I've got a new Facebook page. I've been fucking around with Facebook trying to decide whether I wanted to just delete myself from the Facebook universe. Not sure how to handle Facebook. Um, I don't like it. I don't like the way they keep changing their privacy settings and try, you know, selling you stuff they used to give you for free and, you know, no doubt using every goddamn thing you put up there. To, uh, you know, to leverage for money and giving it to the government and, you know, who knows. But, uh, it does seem to be since this phase of my life is all about building platform and connecting with listeners and readers and, 
um, thereby uh, gaining some independence uh, so I can speak to you directly. It does seem that um, Facebook is an important tool. So anyhow, today I set up a Facebook page. It's uh, You'll find Christopher Ryan. Just search for it. It's a public page. I've changed the name on my private page because what was happening was people were finding me on Facebook and sending me fresh friend requests and I kept denying them because I don't want to clutter up my personal thing with people I don't know because I'd like to keep track of my cousins and their kids and their birthdays and all the stuff that's going on, you know, in my little private circle. Um, but I was feeling bad about that because people are just reaching out to, you know, say hi and, and uh, see what's going on. So anyway, Mandy, uh, my my friend and assistant, uh, if I can call you that, Mandy, uh, set me straight and explained how I could set up a, a public page and then change the name on my private page so I could keep that private and still have a place for people to find me. Anyhow, Christopher Ryan, it's on Facebook. Uh, I'll post stuff there regularly. I'm also on Twitter, as you know, if you're doing Twitter. But if you don't do Twitter, you'll find me on Facebook, and, and I post the same stuff to both places. Uh, this episode of Tangentially Speaking is brought to you by Audible.com. Yeah, you can listen to books now. Isn't that cool? If you go to audibletrial.com slash dawn, what will happen is you get a free download, any book you want. You can do Sex at Dawn if you've never uh, read that book. I hear it's pretty good. Uh, I read the preface, the part where the monkey attacks me and my girlfriend I offered to read the whole damn thing, but they said no. They've got these actors who do it. So anyway, they're uh, actors reading our book. If you've already read Sex at Dawn or you know hear enough of my bullshit through the t- through the podcast, you can do any book you want. You can download whatever for free. Uh, I think it's a thirty day free trial. Um, I'd recommend one of Dan Savage's books. He himself read the whole book, American Savage, his last book, which is fantastic. Um, so you could check that out. Another thing you could check out would be, uh, David Sedaris. He's got a lot of books on, on Audible and, uh, he's hilarious. If you've never heard him, he's really fucking funny. Even if, if you don't hear him, if you read his stuff, he's got such a sharp wit, uh, that he really knows how to convey in writing. Uh, one of my favorite books by him is called uh, Me Talk Pretty One Day. It's about him going to France and living in France with his husband and trying to get his head around French culture and the language and just the way everything's so different over there. And so there's a lot of real uh, insight. It, you know, it's it's he's not just funny. He's not like a goofball. He's funny and thoughtful and deep and um, surprisingly um, powerful sometimes. You know, you'll be laughing, chuckling along, and then suddenly there will be something that will just blow the top of your head off. So that's a really good option as well. Anyhow, whatever you want to listen to, they've got thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of books there. Uh, AudibleTrial.com slash dawn. And just between you and me, if you sign up for the free download and you cancel after 30 days, uh, they, they still send us the sponsorship money. So they're they're essentially paying us just for you to try it. Whether you sign up and give them money or not, doesn't matter. It's a good company. Um, they're very cool. I, I can say as an author you know, who has my own book published there, 
Um, they're very, uh, they're very transparent upfront, pay promptly. They're great. So anyhow, if you want to listen to it or you want to just uh, get some money sent our way, sign up for the, the thing, download your free book, check it out and see what you feel. Uh, what else? Ting, Ting, the mobile phone company that only charges you for what you use. Imagine that. Isn't that, it's one of those things that makes sense, but is, is also very subversive. Um, Ting is like one of those restaurants where you go and you get what you want from the buffet and then they weigh it and that's what they charge you. It's like that, except really cheap. Those restaurants tend to be kind of overpriced. But uh, yeah, Ting, if you if you don't make a lot of calls, you just you know like to send text messages like me, that's what you pay for. If you, on the other hand, you use a lot of data and you don't, whatever, you pay for the data. You, do, you pay for what you use. 98% of the people would save money if they went with Ting because you're paying for shit you don't use month after month after month. Plus, here's what I really like about it. If you're like me where you travel overseas sometimes, you don't have to pay while you're gone. You pay six bucks to keep your number per month. That's it. So what I don't understand, if I get one of these things, I'm paying 60 bucks a month or whatever the fuck it is, and then I go to Spain for a couple of months, I still have to pay 60 bucks a month to keep my number? Hell no. So anyway... Ting.com. If you go to sexatdawn.ting.com, then uh, sign up. If you want to sign up, they've got a thing there that uh, calculates how much you would save. You just plug in your usage numbers from your last phone bill. There you go. They'll tell you what you would save. So sexatdawn.ting.com. Thank you. That's great. Amazon, as always, go to chrisryanphd.com, click on the bonobos balls, go to Amazon, buy your shit. We get a couple percentages from whatever you spend there, which is super cool. Doesn't cost you anything extra. And uh, what else was I going to say? Okay, last thing I want to talk about is uh, talking out my ass. That's the new sort of... um, uh, inner circle podcast I'm putting together for people who want to hear my travel tales and the stuff that happened when I was wandering around the world, getting stumbling into various bizarre situations. Uh, I put up the first episode. It's uh, at chrisryanphd.com. You'll see podcast. Click on that, and then you'll see this podcast. Tangentially speaking, you'll also see Toma T O M A talking out my ass. Uh First episode is uh, high school woman dumped me, broken heart, acting like a pathetic fool, moved to a new town, met a new girl. Interesting things happened. I learned a lesson. So these are going to be kind of um, chronological. I'll jump around when I feel like it, but in general, I'll keep to a chronological uh, order. I'm going to record another one, I think, tonight, maybe tomorrow. That'll be up very shortly, uh, which will pick up from graduating from high school, going to college and skipping my junior year of college and going to Alaska. That's the year my entire life changed. So, um, that, that's a, that's an important one. Uh, that's the year I went to prison and met all these crazy people. In fact, this one, the next episode, I think I'm going to talk about this guy, Ed. One of the first people I met on the road who um, shared a very, very deep and dark secret with me one night, one rainy night in Petersburg, Alaska. Um, Yeah, this episode involves the Mansons. 
Anyhow, so what I'm going to do with that is I was I was I was planning to have it at 99 cents an episode, but that's a big pain in the ass entering all your credit card bullshit for 99 cents and charging by the episode and clutters everything up. It's a mess. So what I'm going to do is 20 bucks, you get access to to all of them, um, and there will be at least I'll do at least two a month for the next year. Um, so. 20 bucks, you get more than 20 episodes. Uh, I'm going to, uh, I'm not going to charge, you know, if I keep going, whatever. If you get in now, you get them forever. Don't worry about it. Uh, if you can't afford 20 bucks, I understand that. There are a lot of people just getting by these days. If you really can't afford 20 bucks, send me an email. Tell me your story. If you really want to hear this stuff, uh, I'll, I'll work it out with you. Um, that's it. Uh, talking on my ass. That's at chrisryanphd.com. You'll find all this stuff there. All right. Thank you. This episode is Andrew Gurevich. Really interesting dude. He teaches world religions, world literature at um, Mount Hood Community College, which is just outside of um, just outside of Portland. Here, I met him because. I got this email from Professor Gurevich and uh, we'd love to invite you to speak at our blah, blah, blah. And I assumed it was like some old dusty professor with a tweed jacket, whatever. Uh, So I said, sure. And, uh, and because we were going to be in Portland anyway. So yeah, okay, we'll do, I'll give a presentation, whatever. Then he um, said, well, we'd like to have you do a, uh, writing workshop as well. Now, I don't do workshops. I don't understand workshops. I don't know what a workshop even is really. Um, you know, I'm happy to like lead a seminar and talk about stuff and, you know, dialogue and all that, but workshops confuse me. So I, I said, yeah, hey, I don't, I don't think I could do a workshop, man. He said, Oh, come on. You can do anything you want. And I said, okay, really anything? He said, yeah, anything. So I told him what I wanted to do. And he said, no, no, you can't do that. <laughs> Cause what I wanted to do was I wanted to have everyone shit in their hand and talk about that experience. Um, but no, that can't really do that. So instead of shitting in their hand, we just talked, this was yesterday. I did the workshop. We, um, we talked about what it would be like to shit in your hand and, um, yeah, it was pretty interesting. And the whole point of that, of course, of the shitting in the hand business is to get people to, to think outside the box, as it were, to, um, detribalize what Joseph Campbell, the great mythologist called detribalization to, Understand that you are part of a tribe, that the way you think, the way you see the world is not just you. It's not just your DNA or your personal situation. It's part of your shaped by your family, shaped by the moment in time in which you live, shaped in the culture, shaped by all these things. And to really get your head around that, you need to step outside of your tribe. You need to travel. You need to travel physically by going somewhere or travel maybe inside through use of altered states of consciousness. You need to step. There's a reason we have two eyes, right? Every one of us has two perspectives that are built into our vision. Even though our brain changes it into one picture, those are two pictures. Those are two cameras um, that are, that are separated. So, there's a certain amount of perspective that's built into every vision, even the most minute. And to, I think, to write uh, effectively and even think effectively requires 
that movement outside of your tribe so that you can look back and understand the nature of your tribe and see where you came from. That's why Joseph Campbell called his book The Hero with a Thousand Faces, because every culture has the same story about the hero who leaves, goes outside the tribe, goes away from home, searching for something, and then comes back and sees where he came from in a whole new way. Um, The final line of The Great Gatsby, and so we beat on boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past, right? Same thing. We're moving. We're facing one direction and moving in another. Anyway, enough about that. Andrew is a really cool guy. He is not a dusty old professor is the point that I was getting at. He is a fascinating dude, very hip, very um, smart, as you'll hear with a fascinating background. I didn't know him that well uh, before we started this conversation. And by the end of the conversation, I felt like I knew him way better. And as you'll hear, his parents met in the least romantic place two people can possibly meet. I guarantee you that. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time? Think about your reputation Try to meet an expectation Alright, so Actually, this has been recording all this time But I'll dump all that shit out <clears throat> All right. Now, why does this not sound? Yours sounds a lot louder in my headphones than mine does. But the I have a very uh, booming voice. Booming. <laughs> Fucking windows shattering. <laughs> All, right. All right. How do you, how do you pronounce your last name? Gurovich. Gurovich. It's you know two or three syllables depending on how Russian you want to sound. Are you Russian? Is that the Russian name? Yeah. It's as common as uh, you know. If you heard, of, remember the you know in the day every movie, you know like Iron Eagle and all those films when we were fighting the Soviets and they would uh, fly yeah. those things called the Soviet MIG. The MIG, yeah, twenty one. Yeah, that yeah. MIG stands for Mikhail Gurevich, spelled the same way. Oh, shit. It was a guy who designed the plane, but it's not. I mean, I guess you could trace a lineage there, but there's uh, when I looked it up, there's like zillions of people with that last name. Huh. It's uh, it's not Russian. It's uh it's it's Slavic. It's somewhere in that Eastern Bloc. Right. Yeah, but right. it was Soviet Union. So you're you're a beet eater. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Cabbage and beets. Cabbage and beets. All right. I'm here with Andrew Gurevich, uh, whose grandfather founded uh, the uh, company that uh, make the MiG-21. Uh, he's a multi-billionaire living on Russian money. No. Rubles. Just kidding. So, okay, Andrew Gurevich is a friend of mine who I met here in Portland uh, shortly after arriving. I got an email from you um, uh, inviting me to give a talk at uh, uh, Mount Hood Community College. Mount Hood Community College, yeah. 
And so I thought you were like some dusty old professor. Yeah, yeah. I get and, that. And just, you know, well, like, you know, professor, blah, 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 from blah, blah, blah. And uh, then, uh, you know, sort of gradually through the email correspondence, I got the sense, well, maybe he's a dusty old professor, professor, but he's got a good sense of humor. Yeah, yeah. And it turns out you're not a dusty old professor at all. You're dusty. And I also dusty don't have a good sense professor. of humor. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, we don't know each other real well, but we've uh, hung out a few times and uh, it was clear to me that there was a lot of interesting stuff going on with you and i thought it would be fun to get that on on a podcast rather than just you know over beers and off into the ether absolutely you know so our entire friendship will be recorded is any of this this binding (laughs) we can edit we can edit out anything you want um yeah in fact if if you say something that you regret or whatever even as you're saying it just like raise your hand and i'll make a note of the time and i can go back and and pull it out um anyway you you teach what english literature american literature just literature world literature mostly yeah and then also world religions and the world lit that i teach is um really two segments i teach the epic tradition and so it's great because it coincides with the world religion um and so we're teaching uh gilgamesh we start with the earliest texts we have so the first stories that we have written down which is the epic of gilgamesh but with my religion background um i take the students back a little further and we go into the babylonian creation epic and so we go into the mm. enuma elish and the seven tablets of creation all that stuff that zachariah sitchin's fucked up when he was trying to uh over my read. head okay so the uh you know ancient aliens the anunnaki all those oh, people right yeah they come from uh, there was a guy named zachariah sitchin's who a lot of folks in that community follow and he um claimed to have taken these tablets these babylonian tablets um, from the Fertile Crescent. Everyone's interested, in, including me, in the religion and the uh, the organization of society in this time period. Right. Three, 4,000 B.C., because it was a real hinge point. Um, and so uh, he took these things and claimed to be able to translate them in a way that says that there was these reptilian... Uh, alien overlords that came at that time and created kingship societies right. and technology that create you know modern civilization and we're still serving them so that situation the whole lizard the uh, lizard people yeah right there's someone else who's the the modern spokesman for that um, uh, people keep telling me I should read read him but once I found out he was talking about lizard overlords I sort of yeah I saw stuff on Facebook recently too his name's escaping yeah I don't remember anyway yeah. What, yeah. you said it was a hinge period a hinge for what why was that an important period uh, this was a um, a shift in civilization uh, for a couple of reasons right and so when we're look, you know the, the work that I do looks at uh, paleo religion and uh, ancient civilization in terms of its um, its myth- mythological consciousness um, a guy named Paul Devereaux, who I work with. Mm. I don't know if you know Paul's yeah, work. Yeah, I've heard that name. He yeah. studies the archaeology of minds, so he looks at these ancient sites to what they show about the development of consciousness uh, and mythological okay. thinking. Yeah. Did we talk about him the other little night? A little bit, or? yeah, yeah. He's not the guy who, who wrote about the, f- the flutes of Peru, is he? Uh, he might have, yeah, I think he might have been. There was actually, something yeah, bizarre, yeah. like these flutes and no one could figure out what they were for, and mm-hmm. then it turns out there's some tonality that changes consciousness or yeah, something? Yeah, it sounds okay. like Paul's work for right. sure. He's doing a lot of work with archaeoacoustics now. Okay. That's what that field has become. And right. they're looking at Stonehenge and uh, the blue stones there and how they ring when you hit them. So they're kind of built in drums. Excuse me. It's really interesting. But, um, what the, what the research seems to suggest is that, you know, in the paleolithic and then up into the neolithic, you have, um, these partnership societies where people live in smaller groups up to a couple of thousand, but usually just a few hundred. And they live, 
um, without a real established hierarchy. Their their huts aren't very different in size. Their mm. bar- their burial plots are the same. Mm. Um, as as you know in the work you do, the sexual relationships are fluid and partnership based, not ownership based. Um, but then something happens at the in the late Neolithic um, when you start getting up into right. So just after Turkey, right? We have those sites in Turkey. Chantal Hayek and right. Gobeki Tempe with a recent discovery right. that seem to be the highest point of civilized partnership cultures, right? And then there's a dip, and then what we have is the wave starts in Samaria, about 7,000 B.C., right? And that group, the Sumerian, Babylonian, uh, Assyrian, Akkadian, right, that group of societies that start with Samaria but really hit the high point in Babylon, um, change everything on the face of the map in terms of human organization. So they invent kingship. Uh, they invent large-scale agriculture in that part right. of the world, at least. Start um, irrigating the Tigris and the Euphrates, right. which leads to a population explosion, which leads to a fundamental change in you know, uh, in culture, because then you get ownership, right? People start drawing out plots of land. And, right. Um, Domesticated animals. The overabundance disease. of grain takes us out of the food chain. Right. Um, and so everything changes. Um, language starts to change. We write, you know, there's a guy named Leonard Schlein. You know Schlein's yeah, book? Yeah, he actually, his daughter is a friend of my sister. Yeah, Tiffany. Yeah, okay. Yeah, she's yeah. cool. She founded the Webbies. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, how do you know that? And, he, and Leonard taught at Saybrook, where mm-hmm. I did my doctoral yeah, work. Absolutely. And he knew yeah. Stanley and all okay. that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and his book, The Alphabet Versus the Goddess, talks about this time period uh. um, when the human brain underwent it from his standpoint of rewiring. And it had to do with these things, the introduction of kingship society, large-scale agriculture, and the introduction of um, linear writing systems. Because he says this rewired the brain starting with Sanskrit, but then going into the uh, the, the Babylonian text, um, you know, when they started organizing things right to left, and it, it rewires the human brain into this kind of left hemisphere dominant machine. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was Schlein's point, and uh, he lays the research out for that. But from my, I think that's a really interesting thesis. There's some people that challenge it, but it, it still kind of holds... You know, if you look at um, Ian McGilchrist's book, do you know him? Mm-mm. He's a really interesting neuropsychologist. Uh, he lives in Ireland. Um, Ian McGilchrist, he has a book called The Master and Its Emissary, The Divided Brain. <clears throat> and he presents kind of the, the most up-to-date research, I think, on um, on hemispheric research. Because that, that figures in heavily into my work in the Paleolithic religion. The left-right thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the corpus callosum, mm-hmm. the great corpus callosum, which is what uh, unifies the two hemispheres. And apparently women have a far more developed corpus callosum than men do. Yes. And when they there was a, uh, a treatment for, I think it was epilepsy, mm-hmm. that some they would cut the corpus callosum. I guess they don't do this anymore, but sometimes they, they cut it. And because the the epileptic storm, I think they call it, starts in one part of the brain and then you know, spreads throughout. Yeah. So by cutting it, it, it sort of keeps it isolated on one side of the brain. And that's when they did this great research with people where, you know, they, they would um, they they could. How did it work? They they had a box with a bunch of objects in the box, and they put their hand in the box. They couldn't see the objects, right? But uh, and then they would show them a picture of the object. 
and they could find the object in the box, but they couldn't describe it because there's no language. So it'd be like, you know, a a triangle and you find the triangle and you pick it up and, you know, okay, correct. And what is it? I don't know. It's like talking to two different people. Very strange how like part of you can be cognizant of something and the other part completely lost yeah oliver Sacks has done some great oliver work Sachs this is is where, great, yeah but so the hinge point i was he's talking about he's also a tripper old oliver Sachs. yeah, yeah. Read that book i was surprised <laughs> yeah. that book didn't get a lot of his his last book is mm-hmm. about hallucinations yeah, and yeah. he talks a lot about dosing up when he was living in topanga mm-hmm. and i was i was expecting some sort of like Outcry, or you know, like, oh my God, he's a druggie. Like, I think that's a part of the neighborhood association uh, contract to live in Topanga. You got to do something. It's in the water. In his defense, man. yeah, <laughs> yeah. But what I was saying about that being a hinge point. Sorry, I got off su- su- topic for a second, hey, but it uh, tangentially speaking, yeah, right, <laughs> aptly titled, <laughs> bitches. <laughs> um, is that uh, the the creation narrative in the Babylonian story has this god? Um, Marduk, who um, who is the son, his mother is uh, a sea serpent named Tiamat, and he uh, decides that he wants to be in charge, and so he you know ushers forth a battle against her, uh, slays her, cuts her body into several pieces, and throws it in different directions, and this creates the planets and the stars and the earth. Uh-huh. Um, and on one part of her rotting corpse is uh, the earth. And he takes some of the uh, the blood from her body and uh, some water and some other things and mashes it together and makes people <clears throat> and um, sets them onto the earth uh, to be slaves for the gods. And he sets them into a garden. And this is all in the Babylonian creation story. And in my world lit class, we start with this because this kind of sets the template for what the stories are when you get to Gilgamesh. Just like when you're reading the Iliad and the Odyssey, it kind of assumes a knowledge of... Zeus and Athena right. and Hermes. And, right. um, so we start there. But this creation story is fascinating because it's fairly macabre, right? You have this son massacring <laughs> yeah. his mother, you know, slaying her body, you know, and cutting her into pieces and tossing her rotting corpse in different directions. And then on a hunk of her ass, he creates people out of some of her vaginal blood, literally. Um, and we are a slave race meant to serve the gods right and we serve the gods by harvesting the fruit of two trees the tree of knowledge and the tree of life um and then we take those baskets of fruit and present them to the gods who eat them and this is why the gods know everything and this is why they live forever right because we harvest this fruit and give it to them and this is the babylonian story that's amazing man i might I might come back to you and 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 use that quote you on that for the book. Mm-hmm. I, I'm you know I'm t- working on this book now and I'm thinking about um, I'm thinking about technology and this whole singularity and you know all this talk about and I, I get the, the what I, what's forming in my mind is is technology and institutions yeah. are a parasitic life force. But but seen through the the lens of this ori- this um, origination myth that you're talking about, they're the gods that we're serving, right? Yeah, the, we're serving them from the tree of knowledge, which yeah. is you know increasing the technology until they get to the point where they can do it themselves, right? And and you know clearly we're feeding these gods. They are institutions do not function with human interests in mind, right? You know that's pretty clear. 
And uh, so, anyway, I don't want to get off on a rant, but yeah, it's very interesting. Douglas Rushkoff is doing some interesting work in this, and he might be a good guy for you to talk to. And also, there's yeah. this great book called The Fourth Turning. I don't know if you've checked out. That sounds written, familiar. Written yeah. by a historian and a sociologist, and they talk about these four stages of uh, generate. <coughs> excuse me, generational change. Um, where you have uh, a group of people that build an institution, right, for the purposes of, um, you know, you create civilization to basically save you from the elements, right? It's, mm. it's what people can do to uh, compensate for the weaknesses that we have individually. Um, so we build these social systems to serve our needs. And you can see this anywhere. You can see this in that NASA report that just come out, came yeah. out says this. And you see this in Greece, you see it in Rome, you see it in Babylon, um, and you're seeing it here, um, where, where an institution is built to service the needs of people right and so the people build it and then they teach their offspring to defend it right but uh because they're defending institutions that were built by people for people but over time the institution hits this tipping point right yeah. it gets to this point where it starts to service its own needs where it it's, comes to life that's yeah, the frankenstein yeah, exactly myth, right? that's the frankenstein myth this yeah. is the terminator story where the yeah. where suddenly the machine exists to serve its <coughs> service its own needs it exists you know this is any bureaucracy right right uh the the justification for its existence is its existence and not to service the needs of people so then the offspring of the people defending that institution start to figure that out and start to fight against it, right. which leads to another collapse, which right. leads to a generation or so of alienated people right. um, because they're living through the middle of this collapse. And then right. you have a generation that starts to rebuild social systems of some kind, mm. whether it's through Occupy, whether it's through organic gardening, whether it's through... Podcasting. podcasting and file sharing. Yeah, yeah, right. People start to form these new communities. Yeah. Right? But then they hit a critical mass and get co-opted again. Right? Meet the new boss. Same <laughs> as the old boss. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, my my uh, take on all that is that it's a question of scale. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, above Dunbar's number, we're fucked. Yeah. You know, more than once, once your fellow man becomes an abstraction as opposed to, you know, that guy over there. Yeah, Bob. Right. Or something, right. Yeah. Then all sorts of uh, snakes come out of the woodwork. It's just like on a farm when they say don't name the animals, yeah. right? Because it's going to be harder kill to cut his throat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. And if exactly. that guy is Steve and not yeah. just some crackhead, then you yeah. have a problem, right? Do you know, I, I was talking, speaking of farms, I was talking to a friend of mine, uh, I don't even remember who it was. Somebody, we were hanging out, and there was a guy there who was a shepherd, a sheep farmer, actually. Mm-hmm. And I made some joke about how dumb sheep are. Yeah. And he said, you know what? Everybody thinks that, but sheep actually aren't dumb at all. They're as smart as any other animal. But the reason everyone thinks they're dumb is that as soon as a sheep um, shows any sign of intelligence, we kill it. Really? Yeah. Because the last thing you want is a smart sheep, because he'll get his nose under the fence, and all the rest of them will follow him right out. So, and you know, and he, he said it's like the heart, most heartbreaking aspect yeah. of my job. Sounds a lot like community college, actually. <laughs> well, I was going to say it sounds like a lot of things. Sounds like working for the government, right. you know, being in the army, whatever. You ever read uh, Ishmael? Daniel Quinn? No, no. It's a pretty interesting book. Uh, it's been recommended to me a few times. Tell me it, about it. I mean, it's kind of hokey. Actually, mm-hmm. Andrew Weil recommended it to okay. me. We were talking about Andrew Weil before we went on, turned on the mics here. But, um, uh, okay, 
the, to me, the the flaw of the book is is the the structure of it. It's this gorilla who, like, some guy meets this gorilla and goes every day to talk with the gorilla, and the okay. gorilla basically gives him lessons on where humanity came from and you know how your species is different. Yeah. So it's this talking gorilla, which okay. I find pretty fucking tiresome after a while. <laughs> Is well, Jack Black in this? <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, but uh, so aside from that, the yeah. message of the book is that the reason, you know, and this never occurred to me till I read the book, but we've got this origin myth in, in the Judeo-Christian tradition in the Old Testament, right? Where mm-hmm. Where God is this jealous, fierce capricious pain in the ass god who like fucks with people just for fun right right you know the devil dares him to fuck with job and so he like covers him with blisters and kills his family and like wonderful bedtime story it's like jesus dude (laughs) chill out so there's you know like george carlin Mm -hmm. pointed to this you know like you know if you touch yourself or have any unapproved pleasure you know you will burn in hell forever (laughs) but god loves you right what the fuck man But anyway, the the sort of explanation for this that Quinn presents in the book is that you had these um, agricultural people in mm-hmm. the Fertile Crescent. And as you say, that's a, a huge hinge point in development of human society because once you've got agriculture, irrigation, domesticated animals, mm-hmm. hierarchies, all that shit, you've got a population explosion. Yeah. Because now people are having babies every year or two instead of, you know, three during a lifetime. Uh, also, infant mortality decreases. Right. So there's, you know. So anyway, you've got this expanding population, so you need more and more land, so you become an expansive, aggressive society. Right. And... The surrounding people are either hunter-gatherers or pastoralists, right? right? And so there's this constant war as the agricultural nucleus grows and grows. And so his theory was that the reason this origin myth was so nasty and aggressive is that it was the myth of the surrounding people explaining why the agriculturalists were such assholes. Yeah. Because their God is angry and vicious and yada, yada, yada. And that got absorbed into the agricultural societies. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's a kind of collective PTSD. There's a guy named Rene Girard who's written about this in a Mm. book called Violence and the Sacred. And he talks about how there's this um, there's this kind of collective cultural hangover after collective acts of violence and sacrifice. Um, that leave a culture kind of unhinged with with collective cultural PTSD in a way he doesn't use those terms where right. I would use that and um, when when a culture goes through that kind of shock either through natural disaster or some explosion in technology or population or depopulation you know from a plague or something yeah. um, you'll frequently see a shift in their myths and you see this in this period. Um, Right in this time period they're talking about it. And what I think is really fascinating about it is a couple of things. Is when you start having writing systems, when you start having these ancient Sanskrit texts um, written down uh, for the first time, we find these tablets. Um, what you find them uh, written on them are, are the first are thing, banking records and uh, right. issues, land who contracts. Who bought what? Yeah. yeah, right. Who bought what and who owns what, right? So this because is the very first writing that we've got any record of. Yeah, right? yeah. And w- what year is this, more or less? Uh, 2700 BC or, or, and before. Right. So yeah. agriculture had been around for 
several millennia before yeah. people were writing stuff down. At least writing stuff down on stone. Right, right. right. Exactly. That's one of the Clay things. Tablets. That, it's <laughs> funny, you know. We always assume like you know, oh, the oldest art is Lascaux or whatever, right. you know. Or the you know the oldest uh, first tools that humans ever made were these stone flint tools and you know these grinders and shit. No, that's just the oldest shit that was made out of stone. That, yeah, that we found. They so were far. making yeah. fucking hammocks five million years ago when they were bonobos. Man. Right, exactly. Bonobos weave hammocks and right? chimps, you know. And so then the yeah. first law systems come in at that point, and there's a real shift in tone here too, right? And this is where religion plays a huge part because before that you had cultural norms, you had taboos, right? Mm-hmm. And so you have things like the incest taboo and these things, right? But taboos are a different thing than laws. Because laws come from ownership societies, and laws are imposed from a top-down kind of system, oh, and they're abstractions, right? right? And they don't have to be agreed upon, and they don't have to be in everyone's best interest. They come right. from some type of ruling institution or authority. Right. A king, a god, uh, a president, uh, an institution. Uh, taboos come from the bottom up. They come from the community, and the only power they have is a power that's agreed upon through experience in the community. Fuck, that's a really important point. Law versus taboo. Yeah. That's a really important... Just as a, as an expression of power, mm-hmm. right? Because, again, getting back to the hunter-gatherer societies, power is based upon respect. Yes. People respect you, therefore you've got power because your opinion is respected. So right. if you say, look, I think it's too early to go to the hunting grounds, people are going, well, he, he normally knows what he's talking about. Right. That's the source of your power, whereas in hierarchical societies, your power is not based upon... It's it based on control. And it's based fear. on ownership yeah, exactly. and fear. Right. Force, coercion, yeah. And so with that, yeah, the first law point. ever written down we have from, from this time period, the first law we've ever found is a law that says if a woman disrespects her man, she should be smashed in the mouth with a hot brick. It's the first law we've ever found, right, wow. written down. And this this is the shift that, that my work in particular looks at with goddess religion because when it makes sense when you have uh, Paleolithic religion. I mean, the goddess statues we found, uh, um, Barakat Ram and Tantan, they go back six 800,000 B.C., Right, and so this is old stuff. Six or eight hundred, hundred thousand. Yeah, the Venus of Tantan or the Venus of Barakat Ram. Really? Yeah, um, and so um, I mean, these are this is ancient stuff, right? This t- this kicks the clock back yeah, further yeah, than, than was previously thought. Because Lascaux yeah. and, and most twenty five thirty five thirty at most. Yeah, and yeah. these are Venus statues, right? Like little figurines, right? Yeah, the these Venus, two in particular. What's the famous one? The Venus of Willendorf. Willendorf yeah, yeah. This is about twenty five thousand BC. Twenty five thousand. Yeah, so, yeah. so these are now and right from that strip where the six, caves are too. Right from that same area from you know, Germany. Yeah, and like Czechoslovakia in there. Yeah, yeah. they yeah. found some in France. So six hundred thousand. Do they look like? Fig- I mean, is it clear that this is man made, or is it like, well, maybe it's yeah, just a rock? The, yeah, there's you know, there's some folks in the that do this work that just get real hinky when you start talking about goddess stuff. And so a couple of these folks have gone, well, no, this could have been done by natural erosion. But when you look at the, I I talk about these in uh, presentations I do on goddess religion, and when you put an image up of the thing, it's clear what it is and it's the same kind of exaggerated exaggerated pregnant hmm. full features right. right of kind of a mother birthing earth goddess right, right. nondescript right but but no very face, centralized but like yeah. large breasts yeah. and yeah, yeah. hips and all that same kind of thing right but um this time period right so these rules right marduk killing his mother and seizing power in the 
Schlein talks about this in the Freudian lexicon. If you're seizing power from the ruling authority, that's usually the father. If it's always been this kind of father rules, kingship, society, males the head of everything, then yeah, then uh, when a son is going to seize authority, he's going to seize it from his father. But in the Babylonian tradition, you have the son seizing power from the mother, right? And he does this by killing her. Right, and taking creative control himself. And there's some really interesting tells in those early stories because these gods, anytime they're going to make people, they take, um, in Marduk's case, blood from the mother. Uh, in Yahweh's case, he takes clay or uh, mm. you know, from the ground, but uh, it's a sanitized version of the same thing, uh, blood from the earth, um, and mashes it together to make people. Right, because the uh, and this is a very important point because in uh, in the Paleolithic and people like Margaret Mead, James Fraser talked about this. There wasn't a clear understanding of where of where babies came from. Right, right. the understanding was that women, uh, you know, they would bleed and then at some point they would stop bleeding, and their blood would clot up inside of themselves and swell up and produce a new human and spit it out. We had absolutely no idea that men had anything to do with this. Um, and it even was up into the 1600s that we knew once we had a little bit of an understanding of that until we understood genetics more that we knew that men actually determined the sex of the baby. So Henry VIII was killing all of his wives because they wouldn't give him a son. Um, so the idea was that the, the mother, right, was the life giver of the species, right? And she did this on her own somehow through her sacred blood, Right. Um, clotting up, right? And so when the son wants to seize authority and make people for himself, first thing he does is take some of the blood and clot it up to try to start make, to make people, right? Because this was the understanding of still of where children came from. And so when a male god wants to make a person, he's got to take some blood and clot it together and do it just like it's thought it was done inside the belly of the sacred mother. But when you take this uh, this idea that women are the sole carrier of the species, right? And you combine it with this notion of ancestor worship, right? Where you, where, where do we come from, right? Indigenous people talk about this. Well, we, we come from the previous generation. And where did it come from, the previous generation? And remember, in this mentality, the previous generation of women, not, not of both. Um, the further back you go, at some point you get um, to an abstraction, which is the first mother, right, of which everything was born, right? And then the mother of the earth, right? So you see the analogy. And so uh, in the thinking, in the early religion, what those figurines uh, seem to mean is they're totems of this energy, right? Of this original birthing feminine energy of which at some point clotted itself together and brought forth the first life. The creation stories were always birthing stories. And even the, the Genesis one is a birthing story, right? But it's a birthing story that is... Um, mediated by this angry, jealous, pissed-off God who says over and over again that I'm taking authority. He says in Job, I've seized the authority, and I take the sacred waters and bind them up. He's a real dick. Yeah, who are yeah. you to question me? Yeah, Where absolutely. were you when yeah. I did this and that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's very insecure, yeah. the Old Testament God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing with Job is because the devil dares him. Remember, they're, they're like basically like playing poker right and the devil and the devil says something like you know uh, you think you're so great the people don't really love you so much and god says uh well look at look at job he's he fears me also yeah. the whole idea of a god fearing man yeah is that is that does that exist in other religions to your knowledge the, the idea that you should not just respect your god but fear him 
I, you know, it exists in Hinduism, but it's uh, it's manifested in the mother Kali, actually, right? right. And so you fear the, the of destruction uh, and yeah, creation. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, there's a you know, I was just talking about this recently. There's a couple of things here that that I think are really interesting. Thank you. Wow. We're take a break while Andrew has a little water. It's vodka, actually. <laughs> oh, is it vodka? <laughs> You'll notice the, the slurring begins now. <laughs> now the truth comes out, right? Is this thing on? <laughs> nah, nah. Don't worry about it. Anyway, back me up. Uh, you were just talking about the God-fearing thing recently. Yeah, yeah. you know, I, th- there's an interesting point here. I have a colleague that I work with who teaches world religions, and he and I, he and I are going back and forth about this recently. And you know, the Job story is a really interesting one to me um, because there's a couple of ways to read it, and the, the 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 obvious way is the way you're talking about it. And if you read it the way the way Christians force you to read the Bible, which is as a a, a history book of literal events then you're absolutely right. You're dealing with a God who's a sociopath and who has no concern for humanity whatsoever and should be, uh, should be feared or opposed, uh, if anything. Not feared out of respect, but feared out of, you know, it's like, like the uncle who yeah. has a few drinks and starts raping you or something, you know what I mean? Right. Feared like Zeus was feared. Um, and another way to read it is, uh, has to do with... Um, you have to go a little bit into Jewish theology, which was, you know, the book was written for first. And it has to do with people living in exile and suffering and suffering through no fault of their own and suffering um, for things that they didn't do. Right. Because the Jewish uh, Bible teaches that if, if you follow God's covenant, you'll be blessed. And if you don't, you'll be cursed. But then life experience shows you that that's not the case always, it's right? It's arbitrary. Yeah, it's arbitrary, yeah. right? Sometimes there's douchebags that get, you know, everything, and then there's yeah. good people that suffer. So what do you do with that? And the book of Job is this kind of inscrutable answer to that, right? Have you seen uh, Serious Man, the Coen brothers, take on the book of Job? No. Yeah, it's their meditation on, on this on the book of Job, I think. It's I mean, It's called I Serious Man? Uh, yeah, Serious Man. Yeah. Is it the black and white thing with Billy Bob Thornton? No, no, no. Oh. It's about a... It takes place, I think, in the 50s, and it's a guy who's a, like a Jewish... Uh, he's like a math professor uh, at a college in... Um, in like the Midwest. It's basically like a, a satirized version of their upbringing. It's the third of their films trying to deal with their own Jewishness. Yeah. Uh, Barton Fink being one of them. Oh, it's a great film. Yeah. I think I did see it. It came yeah. out like 15 years ago or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe a little bit less than that. It's where it's the, he goes to visit the three rabbis who are um, who give him the three uh, the three sets of advice that, you know, mirror in a way the stuff uh, from Job. It's fascinating oh, film. Man, I should watch it again. It's been a Cohen, I just watched uh, No Country for Old Men yeah. the other night mm-hmm. for the second time. That, wow. that was worth a second viewing for sure. Cormac McCarthy is a really interesting dude. Yeah, Most of his books say to me that you have to realize you live in a universe with no compassion, with no grace. And that if you don't, yeah. you'll make a mistake out of weakness and then you'll be killed. It's a pretty bleak understanding, but it's a very Western, it's a very Southwestern understanding yeah, Texas. of the world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, have you read The Road? Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. him, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. God, unrelentingly dark. Whew. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. But I think anyway. there's something to, you know, to, so the, to this, you know, to, to give, to, to, to try to give voice to what I think that text is saying in its best, you know, with its best foot forward. Um People are people are self interested. You know, I was talking with uh, with this colleague of mine, Chris Jackson, and he was saying that he he asks people that if um, 
uh, if you if if God came to you and said go go kick that old lady off the off a cliff, you know, go beat that old go shoot that old lady over there, and if you do, I'll let you into heaven. You'll go to heaven for sure. If you don't, you're going to hell. How many of you would do it? And he said, uh, you know, given those are the act, you know, it's God. You're not crazy. You're not being punked. There's no Ashton Kutcher. I mean, this is a legitimate thing, right? <laughs> you God, would you do it? Kutcher. Yeah, right. I get the two confused frequently, um, right? <laughs> we all know God is Demi Moore. Uh, um, <laughs> uh, and he said, you know, he said, a hundred percent of his students said that they would uh, push the old lady over the cliff um, if they knew that they were going to go to hell if they didn't do it. Um, for eternity. And uh, it's a strange wager. It's a version of uh, Pascal's wager, right? Which is if, uh, which is the same idea that you're betting on God's existence, you know, for the, the sake of your everlasting soul. But it's kind of a shitty impulse, right? It's, it kind of makes you like God. It kind of, it's, uh, it's unleashing the it. it. It's saying, I'll do anything I have to do to get what I need to survive at any cost, right? Then I'll, I'll step on anything I have to to survive. And <laughs> Yeah. That survival instinct is in us, and I get why it's in us. It's a, it's mammalian, right? Uh, this 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 primal fear to do whatever you know. If a bear came in this room right now, right? The old joke is, I don't have to unrun, outrun the bear; I have to outrun you, right? 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 And so the idea of you know whatever survival of the fittest is woven into our species, and there's a there's a component of that that I get, right? That if you're the slow one, then you might get eaten, right? But um, that has to be tempered with compassion in in some way, right? And because if we're going to live in these large scale units, right? And how do you instill people with a sense of compassion, right? To go against that animal instinct for self preservation. And I think the religions were technologies that were developed originally to try to do that, to try to weave in some layer mm-hmm. of an awareness of other. But see, your your premise here is that the survival instinct, the selfishness is woven into the DNA and the compassion isn't. I would argue that in our species, the compassion is. Uh, and it goes right back to our last common ancestor with chimps and bonobos, yes. right? Because you see highly developed social behavior in both those species mm-hmm. right and so you know following biological reasoning mm-hmm. you would say well then it very probably existed in the last common ancestor and in fact i you know my big argument with the neo hobbesian vision you know articulated by people like steven pinker and that yeah. crowd is that what they're doing is that they're they're saying okay the you know uh, for example, they say, well, how could compassion have evolved because you've got the freeloader problem? Right, right? right. The freeloader problem is you've got if, – if you suppose a society of people that are cooperative and compassionate and, and generous with one another, there's going to be one dude who's going to take advantage and eat all the food and you know fuck all the women and abuse right, right. the kids and be a dick. And like, well, you know how he's going to have more offspring, and so that's going to destroy that society. Right. To me, that's such a silly argument because the freeloader gets exiled. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, because the people recognize shame is very deeply functional in these small scale societies. Right. And then you get nothing, and that becomes clear pretty quickly. And we we don't even need to go back to bonobos. No, I would I would agree with that. I mean, we have human societies that exist that still exist. The ones we haven't wiped out, most indigenous cultures. Um, but we have records of one. I mean, there were there were you know some estimates. You know, Cherokee there were twenty thousand people or so, right? And so we have large scale cultures that like absolutely existed in this kind of sharing partnership model, 
right? The old the old joke is that there are no locks on teepees. <laughs> right, because you don't need to lock your yeah. things up because the yeah. thought of taking them or hoarding right. them is that that's a that's a Western man's disease, right? Everything's yeah. just woven into the. No, I would absolutely agree that compassion is abs- is as much um, a part of our genetic makeup. I think we've been culturally coded to produ- to to pursue competition. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and in Western civil and individuality, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the cult of the individual. I yeah. think I don't think there's anything natural about that in our species. I think we've been coded for it. You know, I was just before over the I, past six thousand years. Yeah, and, and in America, very intensely mm-hmm. over Since the past Ed couple Bernays. hundred. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Edward Bernays. Yeah. Yeah. You know who his uncle was, right? Oh, I certainly do. Sigmund uncle Siggy. Fucking Freud. Oh. Edward Bernays. For those of you who don't know, is the father of modern advertising. He started in the twenties. Was the first person to uh, to put together focus groups to test ads before they actually put them together. Test them on small groups of people. And you will, if you're old enough, you'll remember one of his last famous campaigns was co-opting fen- feminism to get women to smoke more cigarettes yeah. with you've come a long way baby certainly have edges. Um, but you're so, still being fucked by the man <laughs> so it's not that long but before I came over here I read this article uh, quite interesting about um, suicide in uh, veterans mm. right one veteran every hour is committing suicide in the United States it's in- incredible <sighs> And uh, so people are researching this. Stanley published a book recently mm-hmm. on on PTSD and veterans. And one of the um, the the most uh, robust predictors of whether uh, a veteran's going to be suicidal is whether or not he he uh, participated in the killing of innocent people. Wow. And uh, which happens constantly mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. in war, right? And so it reminds me of, of the scenario that your colleagues presenting to people, right? Yeah. Would you go kill that old lady if, you know, the God told you to? Right. Well, in this case, God is your commanding officer. He says, light up that building, light up that car. In fact, there was an, an example in the article of a car that was coming toward a checkpoint and his commanding officer said, take it out. Light it up. The yeah. guy took it out. It turned out it was full of kids. Oh, man. So this guy committed suicide, right? Two years later. Um, but, you know, it's a very similar situation. What it makes me think is what what do these people think heaven's like if that's what you need to do to get in there? What kind of fucking clubhouse is this? Yeah, I don't and I don't even know. Yeah, that clubhouse thing is uh, is a really interesting point, because when I was, uh, you know, I as we I think we talked about, you know, I had a whole life as an evangelical Christian pastor. I went to Bible college and well, seminary. I, I wanted to get into yeah, that. Your, yeah. your origin myth here. Yeah. Yeah. And so, that's the okay, whole thing. let's do it. So we're, so let's start at the beginning. You're mm-hmm. from a Christian family. Or? Not, uh, yeah, that's a whole interesting thing. But in answer to that real quick, I oh, think yeah. your clubhouse metaphors and then we'll go into anything you want about the family. The clubhouse metaphors metaphor is a good one because I think this notion of this notion of exclusion uh, Stephen Colbert the other day made a joke he said uh, church attendance is down and he goes I think that God is everywhere loophole got out <laughs> right <laughs> and, uh, and you know this idea that uh, that you know this illusion of scarcity is a is a thing right. that needs to that that you know it's like the diamond industry or something right you you create um, or or fucking cabbage patch dolls or iPads or whatever right you create a need for something and then you uh, control access to it and then you control people because you control that need and so you exactly. make God one of those needs right and there's this and God's in short supply you can only get God from the church from the priest 
Um, so heaven is um, for the handful of people. And it's, I mean, Mike, if you think of all the people that have been born, and if you talk to, you know, first Christians think only Christians go to heaven, right? But if you talk to most Christians, they think 90% of Christians aren't going either, right? So th- it, this thing is, it's the left hemisphere of the brain. It's the ego shaving itself off, right, into infant, you know, until you get to the, you know, the Higgs boson, right? Until there's only going to be 12 people in heaven or 144,000, like the Jehovah's Witnesses say. Uh, 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 ever <laughs> that's that's all who gets in there's 144,000 and how people. many are already in it's, it's already right. full it's already full it's already full so now so um, we're all fucked. And, well, yeah so we're all fucked well you get to live on the new earth when, when it but uh, but heaven you don't get into um, but it's a place of no compassion because it's a place of no empathy because it's a place of no suffering because it's a place of no change right and so i imagine it as just uh, you know, old people playing shuffleboard or something i don't really yeah. know what that's like the the bible talks about heaven as this banquet because it's a fulfillment symbol, right? What it's supposed to mean is that the the afterlife, right? Uh, the, again, the old way of looking at this is that when one dies, one goes back into the infinite. When one's released from a individual consciousness and is released back into non-local right. collective consciousness or the void, however you want to put it. And when, when in the void, one is not lacking anything. When you're back in the void, when you're not you anymore, you're not hungry, you're not tired, you're not sick, you're not... You're you're not lacking anything. You're completely fulfilled because you're not separate from the eternal anymore. Um, and you don't have to believe in religion to believe in that. That's just that, that just seems to be what happens, right? Death releases one from individual consciousness into something else. And the the teaching is is that something is fulfillment. It's some kind of pre-conscious state, kind of like the baby in the womb. Mm. Even if one maintains one's personhood, one doesn't experience the world in terms of the opposites. Right. Um, right. Yeah. yeah. Undifferentiated. Well, I, that, that's how I've always thought of it. Yeah. You know, as a, like, individuality is, you know, here we are in Portland. I look out the window. What do I see? Raindrops. Right. Right. So it's, to me, life is that passage from the cloud till you land in the ocean. Right. That's you. That's me. That's we're raindrops, right? And eventually we hit the ocean, and that water doesn't cease to exist, but it's no longer a raindrop. Uh, Celeste showed me something called Atoms from Everyone, and it's a website that calculates the math and shows you how that you have at any given moment 20 billion atoms that we're in. Mm. Martin Luther King Jr. or Shakespeare yeah. in you. And the problem is, is you go, that's great, um, but you also have Hitler. Right, right, and you also have you know the George Bush, and you also have the and, and George it also, Bush is still alive, right? right? But yeah, but but people are producing, right? So that's the oh, problem. So is he's got his skin, and it comes from like people's shit and stuff too, yeah. right? And yeah. so right, everything is everything, and uh, and mm-hmm. that's a religious concept, but it's one that quantum science and now the physical sciences are showing us as we look at it. But as far as my family goes, no, we were uh, <laughs> we my go dad from was George a, Bush's <laughs> shit right to your family. Well, because they have a lot more in common than you might. <laughs> Thing. <laughs> yeah, both of them are places that you really want to spend a lot of time, man. <laughs> so, what, what part of the country are you from? New York. Uh, oh, okay. yeah. Uh, but we bounced around a lot. My dad was in the mob. Really? Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. And he met my mom. My mom was—it's uh, like raising Arizona, but like an East Coast version. She was a prison guard in Rikers Island when he was serving time are there. Are you kidding? Me? Absolutely not. Yeah. When Ladies they got and gentlemen, I had no idea this <laughs> yeah. was going to be so fascinating. Yeah. I swear, I How just I stumbled this into up? this. <laughs> your mom was a prison guard on Rikers, mm-hmm. and your dad serving time. Yeah. And they meet there. Yeah. And what? He gets out. He got out. They got together. 
and they had me. She was his uh, fifth wife. He had kids with all the others. Right? He, he was Russian? Is this the Gurevich? Jewish, yeah. Oh. Russian Jew. Russian yeah. Jew. Oh, yeah. Right? Tough, yeah. Tough oh, man. Yeah. yeah. And his grandfather, um, Max... Worked, came over here in the in the twenties, and he were he was close with uh, Luciano and uh, and oh, Meyer right. Lansky and all those guys. If uh, yeah, Boardwalk Empire. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's funny actually because when uh, that show actually taught me a little bit about my own heritage. Because growing up, I would ask, I would always ask my dad a little bit about what my grandfather did, and he said he sold insurance policies for his friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I didn't really know what that meant. He had a furniture store that no one ever bought furniture in. That, that thing. I think that people would go out stuffed in the couches yeah, or something. Yeah, I don't know, man. Yeah, yeah, something like that. But uh, we saw an episode of Boardwalk Empire. And I also didn't understand how the Jews and the Italians started working together. But, right. uh, but it was through this guy Rothstein, obviously. right? And yeah. uh, he would have those guys. He would take out policies on them and work, have them work with them. And he would tell them, this is just so you don't run off with our money. But then after working them for six months or so, they'd just kill them and get, take the money anyway. And I guess my grandfather wrote those policies, um, was one of the people that did. Wow. And my dad worked for those guys as well. He dated Bugsy Siegel's daughter for a while. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was wild. Um, and that was all well before I was born. I mean, yeah, I mean, he was older uh, by the time I was born. Um, but they met, had me, and then they started... Um, he kind of stayed in organized crime, but not in any kind of violent way. Like he would just run. I don't. I didn't know exactly what he did, but I knew we moved every two years. Every couple of years we'd move, um, and so we'd go to Southern California for two years, and then we'd go back to New York, and then we'd go to Northern California, and then we'd go back to New York, and then we'd go to um, you know South Florida, and then back to New York. And every time he'd be working with a different group of people and um, extreme kinds of people. So when we were in Southern California, he was hanging out with like you know film producers and stuff and he would you know my dad had a weird rap man because he would uh i think he was one of those old dudes like from the day like jerry lewis and those guys that have all these kids and not pay attention to any of them and like write them off basically um but then with and, and i think when they, when he had me he felt bad for all that so he didn't uh he didn't let me out of his sight he took me everywhere with him and so really? uh all these meetings he would have with all these mobsters i'd be the only kid in the room and i'd be off in the corner playing solitaire or something but i would be there mm. Um, and he'd go to all these parties, and I remember being in L.A., and it would be a trip. The the people that were there, like Nichelle Nichols, uh, the the woman who played Uhura on Star Trek. Oh, sure. The kid that played Horshack on, uh, this is in the 70s, you right. know what I mean, on right. Welcome Back, Cotter. Uh, a couple of people from Gilligan's Island. James Coco was there. Um, um, oh, God, what's his name? Norman Lear. Norman uh, Lear. I mean, yeah, Huge. like a lot of people. Um uh, some of the folks from that show, Heart to Heart, you know what I mean? Just I read this ragtag bunch of Hollywood folks that my dad was running with because he provided cars, old cars, and uh, like mobster looking dudes for mobster <laughs> films. Yeah, that's how he. Actual mobster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got, yeah. And then we'd go to Northern California, he'd be working with. Um, you know, like senators and and like building contractors and stuff, right? And then we'd uh, we'd go into the desert and he'd be working with bikers and Hell's Angels. And I come home from junior high school and there'd be thirty fucking bikes in my front yard, and just bikers all laid all out in my house, drinking, fucking acting crazy, and while their leaders were in doing business with my dad. So do, do you a, have any idea what your dad was doing? Um, most of the time, not. Sometimes a little bit. He had small time rackets where like they, finance or something. Uh-huh. It sounds like. 
It would be the common element. Fence and goods. Them. They would steal shit and sell them to Mexican gangs. They did all kinds of weird stuff. Right. I mean, radios and stuff. I mean, like some, some, some pretty low-end shit. But then drugs, probably all kinds of things. There's a lot of it that mm-hmm. I didn't really get. And you were the last so. kid? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so and you so were we sort of an only child. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Everyone else was like 15 years older than me, right, yeah, right. at least. And did he and your mom stay together? Uh, yeah, they uh, separated a few times, but yeah, pretty much stayed together. They ended up retiring in Las Vegas because, you know, when you are you go to Florida or Vegas, right? Those are the only two options. Right, right. Um, are you still in touch? Or uh, they both passed away uh, recently. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my dad like 10 years ago, my uh-huh. mom recently. But I wasn't in touch with them before. They are uh, a very abusive, very crazy group of folks. Really violent, really, really unstable, really, huh. really fucking sick. And so the religion thing started for me to get out of that stuff, right? I got... Uh, um, I started hanging out with, I was playing guitar in bands and stuff, and I had a friend who was in a band, the, the band that I was in, and he was real religious, and the band wasn't, but this kid was, right? And we were real close, and so I started checking it out, because he was probably my only stable friendship when right. I was a teenager. And where were you um, living? This was in Southern California at the mm-hmm. time, right? Um, and I bounced around a little bit, but ended up coming here um, when I was like 19, yeah, to early, Portland, yeah, yeah, wow. yeah, in like the early nineties. So you'd left your family. Mm-hmm. You yeah, I got, got as far away from it as I could. So your dad, I mean, you know, I get what you're saying about mm-hmm. the, the abuse and, and the craziness, but it sounded like there was a tenderness too. He's taking you around when. Yeah, he, absolutely. Yeah, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I was telling my kids this the other day that probably three times or so in my life I can remember him putting a loaded shotgun in my mouth, right? Like he was going to pull the trigger, and yet at the same time he was the safest person in my family for me to be around. And my kids were blown away by that. But I mean, he we had he had absolute love for me, but he was insane and a violent dude. We got along pretty well, especially when he was older. Because um, by the time I was a teenager, his health was going, and he, you know, and so we got to, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Excuse me, mm. but um, it was a family I just never resonated with. Man, I was always so different than all of them. They made fun of me for reading books and shit. I, I bought a copy of Friedhof Copper's The Tao of Physics when I was like eleven years old and tried reading it. I didn't understand most of it, but I knew I was supposed to for some reason. Um, <clears throat> my mom just would make fun of me for it. Mm. Wouldn't encourage any of it. Would like. They, they took me uh, and got me IQ tested, and it came out high, and my mom yeah. was convinced that it was wrong. She, she said, <laughs> don't fucking tell me this kid's smart. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I mean, you know, you're obviously a very high IQ kind of guy, and, and, and being in that environment must have been really interesting. I mean, I kind of I can't imagine that your, f- your father wasn't stupid. You don't live long in no. that world if you're stupid. Uh-uh. So he might have recognized something in you, you know, like maybe that's why he wanted you around because he saw you were smart. You know what I did? I learned how to get along with a lot of different kinds of people, right? right. From an early age, I learned how to talk to people that were older than me and in, and in that time, especially <coughs> smarter than me and had a lot more experience. Um, and I learned how to talk to a lot of different kinds of people, you know what I mean? Right. And, and, and also at like my age, cause I was going from school to school and school. Right. And so I became the funny kid, you know what I mean? Like I kind of used, I was the fat kid. So I used humor uh-huh. to kind of fit in at the new place and make, and kind of make sure everyone knew I was cool. Right. But I got along with a lot of different kinds of communities and it taught me to, to, to kind of blend in and read people in a lot of ways. Um, the the other thing I did was I you know I lost myself I, it was escapism it was drugs and then it was like books and film and music and right. there was a, there was the dude named Rich Arnold who was one of the bikers that hung, that hung out at my dad's house at our house 
And he'd go around, man, he had two full, like, milk jugs filled with Kahlua, Amaretto, and milk. And he would put one in the fridge and just walk around hammering the one. But he was really into, like, Kurt Vonnegut and, like, Yes and shit, right? And so, (laughs) yeah, we'd play chess and talk about Vonnegut and listen to Yes records while he was drinking that shit and smoke weed. Um, And so I got to meet a lot of people or some of the film producers and stuff, you know what I mean? Like, Mm. uh... Nichelle Nichols told me the story about how Martin Luther King Jr. called her and, and asked her to take the role on Star Trek. Right? I was like a nine-year-old kid, oh, and she just came over and started telling me the story. And I really? knew who she was, yeah. Um, and she said that, you know, it's a story she's told, you know, on camera now, but I, I, I absolutely remember this. I was playing with those little Russian dolls at, uh, at the house that I was uh, where my dad was um, – doing business with someone and she came over and started talking to me and we started and she asked and we started talking about martin luther king and she said that she had been offered the role on this show but didn't want to do it because she was trying to be a serious actress and this seemed like a kind of a ridiculous idea but that he had called her and said look this person's going to be like an off like a military officer like on the bridge like on camera Mm -hmm. is going to be like this official role for a black woman to get that kind of role on tv it's like a big deal would you reconsider it so she's just on the phone with martin luther king going jesus you know (laughs) i wonder if gene roddenberry called martin luther king somehow yeah to get you know and you know to to close that circuit yeah she was involved in the first interracial kiss ever on television. No kidding. Yeah, with Captain Kirk. Oh, wow. Was that it? That was the first interracial kiss on television. Jungle fever. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I like it. Yeah. And uh, first couple ever depicted in television in bed together, mm-hmm. Fred and Wilma Flintstone. Nice. It's got to be in the future or the past. <laughs> Can't be in the present, right? Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? And do you know her nephew was one of the people who committed suicide in that um, Heaven's Gate sect in San Diego. No kidding. You remember that? Yeah, they yeah. all wore their Nikes about, yeah, and, and the, thought the, the Hail Bob, Hail Bob comment yeah. and all that. He was, one of, he was in that sect. Yeah, oh, wow. What a weird fucking thing that was. God, man, those fringe religions, uh, they, they take root in Southern Cal, man, in a <laughs> violent San way. San Diego, it's fucking suburbia. Yeah. You know, it looks so un... Strange that whole region out there in like Temecula and shit though they've been known for producing some weird cults. Well, Topanga, uh, yeah, yeah, right. We had the Mansons, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and uh, Psychic TV and those guys were from out there. I don't know if you remember no. those guys. They were like, uh, they they'd be an interesting sect for you to check out and maybe talk to them. That's why I think you should talk to Douglas. I think you guys would have a great conversation because no one ever talks to him about his time in Psychic TV. Oh, the band player. you mentioned. Yeah. Right, right. Because they were like uh, one of the early like house trance groove, um, you know, I don't know. Like to me, their music was always associated with like um, like the roots of poly communities. Like they were all mm. about like um, creating these little like weird hippie sex communes like back in the day. So I just saw yeah. him last night. I was watching him on a Frontline episode. Yeah, about yeah, where you're talking about Facebook and shit. Yeah, yeah. the like generation or mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He and I were in touch briefly. It was it's kind of embarrassing actually. <laughs> <laughs> I love these stories, man. <laughs> it is. Okay, there was this there's this uh, organization. I don't even know if they still exist. This was like 2 years ago named uh Evolver or Revolver? Yeah, yeah, Evolver. Yeah. yeah. There's a pinchback in those clowns. Right. Yeah, yeah. In New York. So they wanted me to come out and do a talk, right? They weren't going to pay me anything. Yeah. They, they would like pay for my flight, <laughs> okay. right? So, you know, we went back and forth and I, I was like, okay, these guys are cool. It's interesting. It's progressive. And yeah. I was going to do a thing with pinchback, mm-hmm. uh, like a, we were going to be on stage and have a dialogue and whatever. 
and um and I went through all this trouble, like rearranging meetings with my agent and, you know, different people in New York that I had to see and set up, you know, podcast interviews and set up all this stuff. And then like 24 hours before I was supposed to fly out, they canceled it. Jesus. And it's like, fuck you people. You know, yeah, I'm doing this for nothing. Yeah. And we fucking go back and forth for three months and then you cancel it 24 hours before. Fuck you yeah. and the horses you rode in on. That sounds like that organization. It's a goddamn train, Oh, it's right? a fucking mess. And then, um, and then what was it? And then I was like on Twitter, I guess. Something like on Twitter. I don't remember. It must have been Twitter uh-huh. because somehow th- there was this thing where uh, they... They contacted me and asked if I would do something with Rushkoff. Or maybe it was a group email. And I said, hell no. I, I don't ever work with you guys again. I, you're a waste of time. And then Rushkoff wrote back, I'd be happy to do something with you. And I thought he meant with me. Yeah. So I was like, okay, hey, let's get together. And he never answered me. Oh, shit. And then I realized, oh, he meant with them. Oh. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> so my my feeling about Rushkoff is kind of like, I take it back. Uh, yeah, <laughs> fuck you. Fuck you, dude. Um, Bro, but no, if you now, say he's cool. Uh, yeah. I mean, he, you know, he's always been cool with me, but I don't know any of this background stuff. Well, yeah, I, I mean, mean, it's just a misunderstanding. Those New York guys are pretty He doesn't insular. give a shit. And he's yeah. in New York, so yeah. for him it's no big deal. He's, he's not flying across the country to, you know, if they cancel it, it's no big deal, I guess. Um, anyway, that's that's all I. So I was thinking about that last night, watching that thing. Is like, yeah, it, it, you know, it's funny how you develop when you, you know. In my experience, this is all very new, but you like you get these weird relationships with other people who are in the public eye, and there's this weird kind of like you get this vibe, like someone uh, what was his name Ezra, what's his name Ezra something who's you know he's a journalist. Of, Ezra Klein. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Like early on when our book first came out, he tweeted something about how, well, I haven't read it, but it sounds like bullshit. Yeah. And ever since then, I've been like, fuck that Ezra Klein. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> you know, like, like, I didn't even read the book. He's one fucking tweet. And yeah, I'm like, but yeah, yeah, I know Ezra Klein. Yeah, fuck I know her. that motherfucker. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I used to like him before that, you know. But it can, I mean, it can be kind of fierce. And suddenly when you're trying to protect a brand, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I get it, right? Right. It's yeah. like, it's, it's, a, it's a whole other level. But it's stupid. I right. mean, you yeah. know. I, that's why I, I want to like expiate here, you know. Like, so what I was saying uh, before too, right. man. Uh, when it, so when it, to jump around and to just keep the non sequiturs going, when yeah. you shift from a, a partnership society to an ownership society, when you go from living um, within natural cycles to trying to live above them and manipulating them, and 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 seeing the ground as resource, right? If you, if the ground is mother, if the ground is feminine, if the ground uh, is that which gives forth um new life then you know the switch mentally to look at women's bodies and take control of them as well is is a small switch right and the same for the same reasons it goes to ownership kingship societies ownership societies suddenly um and then especially once we start realizing that men contribute to the actual line genetic line then it becomes about controlling kingship lines or controlling offspring for the sake of maintaining 
lines of inheritance, right? Right, and it's the whole seed. The men provide, you know, for a long time, it was thought that men provided the seed and the women were the fertile soil. Exactly. So it's kind of like, you know, weeding your garden, not Mm -hmm. letting any other dudes fuck in that, you know, that particular soil. Right, these invasive species or something. Right, (laughs) yeah, exactly, right? But the body is the resource that... By which you produce your wealth, right? And right. we've and remember at the same time we've got domesticated animals, right? Right. So you've mm-hmm. got you know your your beautiful sheep or whatever. You don't want uh, some other guy's shitty, short, you know, sickly goat coming in and fucking, right? Right. Yeah. So and when people talk about a return to the sacred feminine, at least my understanding of it, because there's this has very little to do with the the the, the various forms of political feminism. Right, and uh, and it has more to do with a return to um, partnership orientation. Right, right, of seeing the world, and that includes in human sexuality. My the the people that I know that I've talked to that are in things like the poly community say that it's a more consensual situation than most people were in when they were just in regular monogamous relationships. Fuck yeah. Right? That women are actually yeah. way more empowered in that environment than they are, say, in like traditional marriage situations. Right, right? and so. Um, that's that falls right in line with the kind of thing that I that I research in terms of paleo yeah. religion, right? It's partnership yeah. orientations over ownership. So women are more empowered, and the men are getting laid more, which is a return to bonobo. It's win win, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, that's you know. It's so, and it's, so of course it's uh, sort of low stress, low conflict, yeah. because you know the men are getting laid a lot, and the women have power. So right. like, what's not to love? Right? Yeah. And where's the problem? Well, and this is a point we raised in Sex at Dawn, how you know, a lot of male anthropologists say, well, there are no matriarchal societies on the planet. Mm-hmm. Therefore, patriarchy is built into our DNA, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. The problem is that they don't know what the fuck a matriarchy looks like because right. they're expecting an inverse of a patriarchy. Absolutely. Where women are running around abusing men. And it right. turns out that when women are in power, they don't abuse men. Right. They, they fuck men. Right. And yeah. they, everybody has a good time. They fuck each other. They yeah. fuck each yeah. other. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so you look at bonobo society or some of the human societies that we point to in the book and the men are happy. Nobody's yeah. getting abused. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's why they don't recognize it. Right. Because women wield power differently differently than men do yeah and you know to say there's you know that this is what we call in in philosophy a tautology this is a circular argument there are no matriarchies there are only patriarchies because we've uh, we've because we've slaughtered most of the people that lived in partnership societies but you know a lot of indigenous people have tricks to get around this and so they'll have the you know the twin chief the the warrior chief and the shaman priest right and frequently those will both be male sometimes not sometimes the shaman uh, and i hate that word but sometimes the priest the medicine person Person will be a two spirit, um, but yes, they'll have a male chief, but they'll have a, count, a council of uh, yeah. grandmothers pick like the, the chief or something. Yeah, yeah right. And yeah. so there's still this kind of balance right. partnership motif, and and these male anthropologists you'll talk you're talking about would still call that a patriarchy because there's a chief, yeah. right? Yeah, and they're and looking they for what they want to find in order to justify the research that you know the yeah. the, the degree that they earned. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> literally. The, yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah. So okay, well, let's get back to your yeah. your personal journey. Yeah, if you don't mind. No, you're, not you're, at all. You're man. cool talking about this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so okay. Wow, I, I I lived in twenty different houses before I got out of high school. So uh-huh. there's something we have in common. Yeah. 
Um, I don't think my dad was in the mob. He thought he was in the military. Okay. Yeah. Those just, are... <laughs> turns out he just liked uniforms. Uh, but, uh, That's a much more dangerous mob. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, okay, so you're moving around all over the place. You're always the new kid. You find refuge in, in books and music and... Mm-hmm. Uh, Weed. Intelligent biker. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah. that's an interesting cinematic. Yeah, he looked like John Lennon crossed with like a walrus, man. He was a really interesting dude. And he wore these glasses like I have on now, these like those round things. John Lennon and, glasses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he just, but I remember like he was into books and he, he gave me Kerouac. He gave me Vonnegut, you know. And uh, so really I met a lot of people like that and I just kind of picked up a street education. Right. I mean, I went to school, but I mean, I learned more in those situations than I learned from any. I'm going to take your picture right now Mm -hmm. because I like to do this while we're talking so people can see the image and like, no, it came right at that moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, I've got a buddy named Voodoo who's like that. Okay. Super high IQ guy. Mm -hmm. Both his parents were were doctors, actually kind of famous doctors. And he got into a biker gang when he was young, very alienated, covered mm-hmm. with tattoos, and like you know, mainstream life just wasn't in the cards yeah, yeah. anymore. And uh, and now he's a tattoo artist himself. But uh, yeah, I, I like people like that where it's like they're in a world where being really smart is kind of a problem, right? You got to cover it up, mm-hmm. but then you find a kindred spirit and you can share you can unleash it. Unleash a bit of that, and you know what you learn yeah. about is the different kinds of human intelligence, also, yeah. right? Because it's very dynamic; it doesn't always express itself in the same way, sure. right? and that's fascinating to me. But I, uh, I got into the God thing really probably just to find some kind of stability, man. I mean, the, right. my family it's a community. was so well, yeah. There was a community of people that, you know, I got married and started having kids, and so I, it was a thing that. How old were you? Yeah, uh, uh, like twenty three. Wow. Yeah, and I had two kids and was married, and I thought, okay, this this church thing is a is a stable community. I, you know, I knew enough. You know, I had always been interested in the big questions. I, you know, at the time, I was interested in the same things I'm interested in now: consciousness, what you know, the the our our connection to the cosmos, our connection to one another, what the hell we are. Um, and so I had those same questions when I was 23 that I have now. And you know, the great thing about religion is it, it answers those for you. There's a, some great research that just came out recently that talks about how your brain, <coughs> excuse me, is the most expensive organ in your brain or in your brain in your body. Um, Except for in my case at the moment, uh, it uses forty percent of the energy, into, yeah. right? And so it's constantly trying to find ways to reduce that energy input. And one of the ways it does that is through creating these feedback loops or these worldviews, these systems of thought that connect to one another and put everything in its place. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, God created Adam and Eve, and then there was the snake, and then there was Moses, and then there was Jesus, and now there's now, and then Jesus comes back and takes us all to heaven, right? That that organizes a lot of shit for you. That you don't have to think about anymore, right? Mm. And so that's a brain. Your brain or- creates these things to save itself energy mm. because if you're constantly having to ponder, right, the cosmos and your connection to it, and 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 what your life means, and and the the uncertainty of your own death, it's a very taxing existential <laughs> place to be in, right? And so yeah. your brain wants to set that stuff in, in line, and then you know, fundamentalism is a is a. Um, Right is a technology for saving energy in the in the brain, and so young people can be susceptible to it, especially ones with PTSD. Hmm. Right, because it, it puts a lot of things in order for you and gives you a life raft. <clears throat> you know, and religion's right there to grab it. So I, you know, I bought in hook, line, and sinker, kind of. 
um, you know, I never, I, you know, I, I never hated the gays. I never I was against a board. You know, I didn't really ever fall in on the social agenda. Mm. You know what I mean? When Oregon uh, legalized assisted uh, doctor assisted suicide, um, I was in in favor of that. You know, yeah. I was a pastor at the time. I've been in favor of same sex marriage. And you spoke openly about openly these about that. Yeah. When, what what was, was the pastor. church? It was a, uh, there was a couple. The last one I was at was a place called Northridge Community Church, which are just it's non denominational Christian. Ah, so it's pretty liberal, open to gays and black people. Th- this place was not. No, yeah, this oh. was fairly conservative, white, oh. evangelical. Oh, okay. but uh, so this is one of the reasons I'm an ex pastor, right? Yeah. I, I wasn't thrown out. I just left the the religion. Hmm. You know, I realized that. Uh, that the the quest I was on had taken me um, deep down the Christian road, and I, you know, I almost felt like, um, in a weird sort of way, you know, I mean, you know, I, I frequently compare myself to the Buddha, but no, but in a weird sort of way, when he goes out and he's trying to study all the various religious paths available right. to him. Um, that's kind of what I felt like. I just felt like I was trying to go as deep as I could into the thing to see if there was anything there. Mm. And I did. I learned Greek and Hebrew. I mean, I have a bachelor's really? and a master's degree in, in Christian theology. And I went as far into it as I could um, to, to get to the bottom of it. And I, I learned a great deal about some of the substance of, of some of the good things that are in those texts, some of the the ancient things that are in those texts that predate it, some of these, these what Bastian called the elementary ideas. Um, they're in there still, but they're hidden. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Um, but the the system itself, especially as expressed in most churches now, is a fucking bankrupt, uh, you know, self-serving. Yeah. Yeah, it's the institution yeah. that's you know, xenophobic. Moorings. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anti-humanitarian. I right. Mean, yeah, to, you ever to been to Israel? No. Are you interested? Do you think that would be moving for you to, to be there? I'm afraid to go. I think just because of political instability, and, and I also am afraid to support. I, you know, I, uh, I, I'm not a, I'm a pro-Palestinian guy, and so I feel yeah. like being in Israel would be a weird thing for me. I was there. I've only been there once. It was for an ecstasy uh-huh. conference. Oh wow! Yeah, it was the. It was sponsored by MAPS, the mm-hmm. Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the president and we met, and and uh, because I spoke Spanish, um, he invited me uh, to translate for one of the Spanish uh, scientists who was there. Mm-hmm. And I did some writing for them. So yeah, I got an all expenses paid trip to no the Dead Sea Hyatt. Wow, for an ecstasy conference. <laughs> for an ecstasy conference. <laughs> yeah, we went around. We went into uh, Bethlehem and. Uh, Mosada, mm-hmm. I think, is the mountaintop where yeah. everybody jumped off the mountain rather than be conquered. Yeah. Pretty heavy. I mean, that's talking about an origin origin myth, you know. Um, very interesting. In Jerusalem, of course. You know, I'm not... I, I was raised... My Both my parents were Catholic until they went to college. And mm-hmm. then they both sort of... Like, once they got into higher learning, they both sort of said, mm, this doesn't make sense. Yeah. And so it was more of a cultural thing for them. But... Um, no, but my dad actually, my dad wanted to be a priest when he went to college, and uh, and then he started having doubts, and he had a real crisis, and he went to this professor at this Catholic college mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania, um, and uh, he went to his professor that he trusted the most, and he told him like he was having serious questions about Christianity, and the professor said, who was a priest, the professor said, I've never told anyone this, but I'm having doubts myself hmm. and uh yeah and then he left the the priesthood and i'm named after him 
That's, no kidding. Yeah, so I'm named after a lapsed priest <laughs> who, I, who I then met later in life when wow. I was in my 20s. I met him. What did he do after he left the priesthood? You know, he uh, he was teaching. He was a he was a, a scholar of. I think he had a doctorate in literature, and he was a, a real scholar of uh, Chaucer. Okay. Yeah, and sort of like that early English uh, mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Uh, I teach John... that as well. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did and he lose his taste for boy fucking? He never got into it. I think yeah. that might have been the problem. Yeah, you no know? kidding. Yeah, That's he was the a lapsed priest are the ones with the uh, yeah <laughs> the ones who care with ethics. Yeah. yeah, no, he was he was a really good guy. He was one of those you know he was one of those sort of liberation theology mm-hmm. you know um, you know going down in Nicaragua and yeah, yeah. helping and you know supporting the 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 or the the Beringers that yeah. broke into the nuclear research places and you know sat on the tracks trying to stop the delivery of missiles and you know, like very politically activist right. kind of uh, humanitarian Christian. Yeah. At the end of the day, man, that's, that's what I came back to. Cause when I left Christianity, I, you know, I had bought into this idea that this is what God was. And so when I walked away from it, I walked away from religion in general, right? Cause I just thought, you know, I don't believe in any of this bullshit anymore. I had already decided all the other religions were wrong. And now I just figured uh, out this one's wrong too. So right. fuck the whole thing. Um, and this is right when the new atheists were coming around, Dawkins and right. Christopher Hitchens. And, yeah. and so I jumped on board with those guys for a while. And I still, you know, I think yeah, I think Dawkins can be a bit of a dick, but uh, but I still appreciate a lot of what those guys. I loved Hitchens' work. and uh, But I started teaching world religions in the college level, and I had to go back into all the, not just Christianity, but Hinduism and Judaism. And uh, you know, teaching Jainism and teaching about uh, mm. Shinto or teaching about Taoism and Confucianism. And so I spent a lot of time in these traditions um, and going back into the work of Houston Smith, going back into the work of Joseph Campbell, right? Going back into these people brought me a whole new lens for looking at these traditions. And now, yeah. and what I've been able to bring to it since, you know, Houston Smith is still alive and Campbell died in 87 is all Both this, of them were friends of Stanley's by the way. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. Uh, is this new work in neuropsychology that's right, being done. Right. Um, and on another level, um, which I don't understand as well, is the work that's being done in quantum science and quantum biology. But these findings, especially the neuropsychological stuff has given us another lens to look at these religious traditions, the the more recent ones and the ancient ones, through through and, and really try to explain how their technologies for for accessing and expanding different states of consciousness. Yeah, yeah, and I, I mean, this is something I'm I'm, I'm trying to to um, to uh, what's the word uh, when, when you don't go either way? You're trying to like just navigate it. Yeah, you're trying yeah, to stay neutral on it. Huh? Fuck, there's a word for that. I can't remember. To uh, anyway, in this book, I'm trying to to deal with this question, and you know, on the one side, you've got the the ultra skeptics and mm-hmm. the you know all religions bullshit, fuck mm-hmm. it all, and then you've got the true believers. And I'm trying to to get navigate between the two of them in the sense that they're both kind of wrong, yeah. and they're both kind of right. Right, right. Uh, you know, because as far as religion goes, and I guess this is what you're referring to with the neuropsychology, there is demonstrable evidence that people who have some sort of religious belief are happier. Mm-hmm. Right now, 
and actually that's much stronger than economics like so you're if you're worried about being happy you're much better off being a believer hmm. than you are being rich right. now uh, in fact, the happiest people come from poor religious countries, yeah. right? So that tells you something about yeah, Bhutan, yeah. Yeah. right? And we're yeah. all striving to be rich and secular. So right. what the fuck is that? But um, but there, you know, this whole idea that okay, who was it that said uh, uh, reality is that which Philip K. Dick mm-hmm. said reality is that which when you stop believing in it doesn't disappear. Yeah, right. Which is very interesting, but I think it's wrong in the sense that religion can have demonstrable, measurable effects on people's lives. Yeah. So you say, okay, but God's not, you can't prove God's real, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins would you know, scoff at that. Okay, fine, but it's like the placebo effect. Yeah. If, I, if I can give you a pill that reduces your heart rate and blood pressure every time, mm-hmm. and the pill is bullshit... It's not bullshit. Right. Because it has those measurable effects. You know? So even by the scientific method, you have to say that's not bullshit. Hypnosis is not bullshit. Right. There are people who've had open heart surgery with no anesthesia other than hypnosis. It's not bullshit. Right. How's it work? Nobody knows. Yeah, and you can go I mean, people have mystical experiences. What those mean, what the origin of those are is is a whole other question. Right. Right. What they're actually referring to right uh is another question but I, I i think you can go even further than that i think the the religious experience is one of um of finally uh, how do i want to word it um the word religion itself means to tie back together right in from the latin religio right oh, really That's yeah interesting. it's a it's a, the the vision is is that there's this cord that connected you to yourself and to the cosmos that's been snapped by something and the religion is supposed to reconnect this court to tie it back together. Um, and so when, when someone has uh, a transcendent experience, um, and this could be just, you know, smoking DMT and sitting out and looking at the night sky. This could be not smoking DMT and sitting out and looking at the night sky. It doesn't have to do anything with church or religion, um, that transcendent experience um, can can simultaneously be one of a feeling of of, uh, of insignificance and also great significance, right? In the face of the the infinite cosmos, right? Um, we we experience transformation, we experience uh, fertility, we experience regeneration, we experience bliss, right? We experience death, we experience new life, and uh, we experience purpose and also chaos in the world, and so. We all of the things that religion helps us to, to categorize and name um, are all aspects of the human experience. And to simply say that oh they they don't refer to any being out there in the sky, they're only coming from your subconscious mind. That to me that that doesn't take away any of their power. No, it's just another all. way of explaining the same thing. Right? Absolutely. And yeah. what they do is they get all those experiences you just listed. What a religion does, or at least a spiritual mm-hmm. discipline of some sort does, is is provides meaning yeah which getting back to what we were talking and about coherence earlier, yeah right i mean that's when there's who is it uh by the way the word i was trying to think of earlier was finesse oh, okay. i was trying to finesse those okay. two viewpoints right um you know uh, I, th- I think it was the man's search for meaning you know mm-hmm. that book um uh the the great psychiatrist who was in the concentration camps Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Frankel, Victor yeah, yeah, Frankel. Frankel. Yeah. yeah, great book. Oh my god! But he makes the point there that you know, uh, 
if if there's meaning involved, you can withstand mm-hmm. practically anything. Yeah. If it's meaningful to you. Yeah. If there's a reason and a way to understand it. And uh, yeah, I I don't know. It's it's very interesting because it's like you know somebody who looks at art and says, well, it's it's meaningless bullshit. Yeah. Versus someone who sees meaning in it and gets great pleasure from it. Well, who's right? Right. You know, in a certain level, who gives a shit? The guy who's getting pleasure from it's better off because he's got the pleasure. And I think, you know, what I think is fascinating about these things is how they manifest out of us, whether we believe in them or not. And so the work I've been doing lately is going around and finding these symbols in places like New York Harbor. Right. So America's goddess tradition. Right. The goddess Columbia, Mm. who, who, you know, the 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 city of power, the seat of power is named the District of Columbia. You go to all of those buildings and they have a female statue on top of them or in front of them, the, the Department of Justice, Department of Interior, Department of Education. Capital, they all they they don't have Jesus in front of them, right? They have a female in front of them or on top of them. Um, you go into New York Harbor and there's this giant woman statue there. And when you when you talk to people about why that is, when you ask them why why do you think those statues are there, um, they 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 don't know, and they can give you a, a historical answer, right? And there's this idea that oh, this feminized version of. Uh, you know that 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 Libertas or Columbia or just it's like when you name a car or a ship or something and yeah. you give it this female name or right. a hurricane or something, right? Um, and people give it this kind of descriptive notion of like, the, oh yeah, that's just people just do that. They just name things and they give them these feminized forms. But but as a, as a somebody as somebody who studies symbols. Right and and what symbols have to say about human psychology? We don't just do that when we want to express the highest form that we can think of, right? Uh, we almost always express that in feminine form, right? And we embody it in in the feminine, right? Mm. And this is something that we've done historically, even though we don't know what we're doing. And it's not, there's no belief in the goddess. There's no, I'm not suggesting for a second that the founding fathers were egalitarian in their understanding of the gender or, you know what I mean? I mean, these were white racist pricks, right? But they still put goddess statues up everywhere. And that's what's fascinating to me. Right, is even read, when they don't know what they're doing, they still put these icons in a up sort of Jungian sense. Yeah, because yeah. it just is coming out of the collective subconscious, right? right. Yeah. Have you have you read the stuff about um, the design of the U.S. government? I think it was Benjamin Franklin who studied the Iroquois Nation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the the bicameral nature of the American government may have been based upon his studies of the Iroquois, which, as you said, had a council of men. And a council of women. Wow. And the council of men would make the decisions, but they had to be approved by the council of women. Wow. So the, the men they would argue the stuff out. The, women said, okay. right. yeah. the men would argue the stuff out, and they'd go through all the you know procedural stuff, and they'd come to a decision, but it had to be stamped by the council of women. Do you know the Greek play Lysistrata? You familiar with that? No, I've never read it's it. Fascinating because the Greek society is, is, you know, a lot of of this patriarchy, a lot of machismo, and and you know, the god Zeus gives Yahweh a run for his money as far as dickishness and raping and pillaging. As but, a um, swan, was he the guy who became a mm-hmm, swan yeah, to fuck Leda? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but the Greeks also, what you find in Greek culture and religion also is this throwback to the earlier stuff because yeah. the Minoan and Mycenaean civilizations were, were partnership. And I would argue goddess cultures, uh, mm. um, that you get this overlay of these invading Indo-Europeans, the same thing that happened in India at the same time period. Um, 
and so you see the in in the stories you can kind of find the previous stuff um and Zeus wait I forgot where I was going with that that's what vodka does for you yeah exactly. especially if you're a Russian Jew <laughs> yeah, right? no, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, where were you going with that uh we were talking about the. You can edit that part later. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck it. I don't remember either. Like that's what beer yeah. does for me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. What are we? One twenty-eight. One twenty-eight. Where? 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 We? Pause it for a second. Yeah, yeah. So I can remember. Sorry. So the play I remember now. The play List Estrada was a. Um, the women become furious at at the war, at the war, constant war, because what was going on in Athens is that they 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 form as a as an empire um, to defend themselves against uh, the Persians, right? So right. they have a legitimate cause when they first fight, which is which is self preservation, right? And they and they they're victorious, um, and they they're victorious through um, some naval advances they make, and then they use this navy to create a trade empire. That, that spans the whole Mediterranean, right? And so they become extremely wealthy, and they invest all of this money into the city, into the arts, into water systems. Into, I mean, so the people are living a better life, because, mm-hmm. and they do this through trade, mostly. Um, but then they start to get greedy, and they start to... And there's conquest, like we're talking about. And then they start to get paranoid, and they think, oh, those Spartans are trouble. You know, we might as well have a preemptive war with them before they attack us, right? So they they enter into this unnecessary, uh, prolonged conflict with Sparta that gets more expensive and more expensive and goes on year after year after year. Suddenly, they're not investing into the city anymore. Suddenly, all of the right, and they're raising taxes for the war effort, and then people start grumbling about it, and then those people are considered to be. Um, traitors right and they start arresting people that criticize the war effort it's the same thing you see here it's the same thing you see everywhere um but there was a play written called lysistrata by aeschylus i believe um believe it was aeschylus uh where all of the women decide you'll love this that they're gonna they want to stop this crazy warfare and so they all meet and agree in the women's council that they're gonna cut all the men off no sex no sex until they stop the war yeah yeah and it goes about a week until the men stop the war and are on their knees literally in compliance right but weren't the men in ancient greece fucking the boys well right that's the problem in the play is they would (laughs) have taken a lot longer than that to figure it out right there would have had to been a boy strike yeah yeah. exactly yeah yeah there's the loophole there there. Yeah, there are, right. There's a lot of people to fuck if you were... Women were seen as an interruption yeah, yeah, right? when you read yeah. the symposium, for sure. There was also a thing, I don't know if it was in Athens or in Rome, where uh, everybody ran through the streets knocking the penises off the statues. Yeah. One, it was like one crazy night. Mm-hmm. It was some sort of a political uprising. Do you remember? Was yeah. That, I, I don't know if that was Greece or Rome, but... Yeah, like, because all the statues had penises, and then this one night, everybody was just like, fuck, and they went crazy. And yeah, and there's ways of dealing with this, and that's what I was going to say, too, is in many other religions, you find, um, if you find some kind of strong feminine energy in the religion, then what you'll find is a, is this bonobo energy. Everyone's getting laid, and everyone's in this kind of egalitarian partnership. I mean, that's not to suggest that... Uh, goddesses can't be violent because they are and they require sacrifice and violence too but nothing on the scale Maria Gambutis pointed out that there's not a single cave painting of people fighting each other in large scale from the Neolithic or before yeah um, you don't have large scale weaponry and stuff right yeah. you know uh, prior to the you know late Neolithic very few human figures yeah. in cave art yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. 
Um, and so, and then when you see the emergence of these other avatars, these other deities that that do take on masculine characteristics, they start as the son consort. Right of the sacred mother, her son that grows to become her lover to impregnate uh, her again, and you go, oh, that's nasty. But you don't get around the incest thing, right? If you're starting with one, how do you get two? How do you get three? Right. At some point, someone's fucking mom or dad. You do that in the Bible too with Adam and Eve. Um, yeah, and the right? Egyptians were had no problem with incest. Yeah, right? right. And so at some point, that has to self, you know. But but in mythology, it doesn't work the same, right? I mean, yeah. you're dealing mythologically, but these deities emerge like i'm thinking in india either in pairs and so you'll have you know shiva and a consort Hmm. or you'll have the deity with this kind of androgynous kind of features all the deities either look like michael jackson or david bowie or something they kind of embody both Hmm. even though it's technically a male right if you see these images of vishnu or shiva or krishna they're very feminine in orientation and so they kind of have this androgynous component to them because the deities are supposed to represent creative energy Right, and so when you understand creative energy to be solely feminine, right, then these deities will be solely feminine. But as that starts to switch, you'll see the deities, and you know, and we realize, right, and in India we find, right, all of these sacred yonis, right, and sacred caves, and this uh, this absolute awareness of sacred feminine sexual energy, right, through Kundalini, through uh, yeah. um, uh, what's the tantra. Other, tantra. Um, but there's also an awareness of sacred masculine sex through the stone lingams and the, the, right. all the penis statues everywhere, right? And so mm-hmm. there's this idea that that that, that it's complementary, right? And right. that the creative aspect comes through both, but not but through you know it, it, India is a place where, where women have it worse than anywhere on the planet, so it doesn't really translate into their politics, but it's there in their religion. Yeah, although they had a president far before uh-huh. the United States did a female president, right, mm-hmm. Indira mm-hmm. Gandhi, but. Um, I remember reading somewhere talking about the t- the tantra and all that. Om Mani Padmi Om, which means the the bliss lies at the heart of the lotus mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah. Actually, referred to pussy. Oh no shit, G spot. Yeah. yeah, well, like the, like that's where you want to be, right? Yeah. Either yeah. being born or or mm-hmm. having making love or whatever. Wow. Yeah. What about Native American religions? How does that work with the Aztec, the Maya, you know, other Native American religions we know of, the Hopi? Yeah. Um, And so uh, I'm not an expert in this part of the world. My stuff deals mostly with, um, you know, the Judeo-Christian faiths and then also the Paleolithic stuff, goddess religion in, you know, Chavez. Right. Moscow and uh, the the cave art and the the totemistic qualities of the animals and what right. they mean specifically. But I do know a couple of things and the sacred feminine figures in there as well. My friend Sharon Mahara studies this and the Pachimama uh, motif, right? This Mother Earth, Father Sky right. motif. And so there's this complementary idea. There's frequently um, there will be stories of sacred mountains where this mountain here is a brother and this mountain here is a brother and this mountain over here is a woman. And they're both competing. They're three volcanoes, and they're competing for her love or something. Uh, right. um, and so the sacred, you know, there's this machismo aspect, and there's the, you know, there's definitely this sacred masculine aspect in those religions. But um, the sacred feminine is there usually within this partnership. How the 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 most common motif I've heard is that there's this kind of mother earth, father sky, and they exist in this kind of yin yang relationship, um, but they are pulled apart at the moment. Um, and they're pulled apart for the purposes of us living on the earth, right? Um, but at some point, they're going to collapse together again, right, in these kinds of cycles of regeneration. 
And so they're pulled apart, yearning for one another. Mm. Um, but in one day we'll be reunited to to create a new cosmos, basically. Mm. Right. And so these kind of cycles of creation you know, uh, and right. collapse and recreation. And that's, you know, that's what I mean about these religions, too, is that they are pointing at processes that we know go on in the universe. Right. That things go into the belly of stars and transform right. into uh, essential elements that then blow out into the universe and combine in ways and become everything else and throw up a form as a giraffe for a while. And then that dissipates and then comes yeah. up. You know, do you think Klosterman or something, right? But yeah. it's uh, but it's all right. But all of it's just in flux, right? Well, it, you know, it makes me think of how. Uh, well, all right, you know the story. You, you mentioned the Higgs boson earlier. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you know the story of how that became the God particle. Do we talk about this? Uh, go ahead, tell me. Well, the the story. Or tell us. <laughs> I, I remember reading some interview, and and you know, we all hear about the God particle, the God mm-hmm, particle, blah mm-hmm. blah blah. And apparently, what I assumed, and I think most people assume, is that it's so elemental mm-hmm. that it's like getting to God. You yeah, know? it's yeah. like the the most elemental particle. And uh, but I read an interview with the guy who discovered it. And, you know, and the interview, apparently the story was that the interviewer of New York Times or whomever it was, was, you know, like, how long have you been looking for this particle? And the scientist, the physicist said, I've been looking for this goddamn particle my whole fucking life. And the journalist was like, well, I can't say goddamn. Right. (laughs) So in the quote, it said God dash particle. Oh, wow. And that became the God, the God particle. particle. But it was a he, he said the goddamn particle. particle. No, right? that's branding. No shit. Is yeah. that true? Really? He I, said that. I, I believe that's, that's true. Yeah. So anyway, uh-huh. okay. Now, the, how this ties into what you're talking about now with you know how how religions are expressing processes that happen in the universe. Mm-hmm. Do you get the sense with your you know your deep knowledge of of these religious stories and the and the recurring patterns that Joseph Campbell talks about a lot? On at its highest level or or most fundamental level. Is science replicating the same stories we've had many, many times from other religions? Other religions. That gives away yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. Right? In other yeah. words, there's a mythology in mm-hmm. science, mm-hmm. right? Let it, the, the Big Bang. Yeah. You know, the universe is expanding. Eventually, it'll contract and collapse on itself. And right. then it, you know, it becomes a black hole, and then everything comes back out, and like in and out, and, you know, expanding, contracting, destruction, creation. It's like, it's mm-hmm. the same story, it's just told thing. in different ways, right? Told in different ways, told with, with different terms, told with different measurements. But but I, I, I completely agree, and I think there's a... You know, there's two things in science, right? You have to start with a set of first principles. One is the Big Bang, and and two is this big question mark of what happens before it and what happens to initiate it, right? Those are those are huge problems to to answer, but there are more. Um, And then the other one has to do with the scientific method itself, right? Which has yielded all kinds of wonderful information, but is only good for yielding certain kinds of information, right? Right. And you heard the old thing. when the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail, right? right? And mm-hmm. so there are there are, there are blind spots in the scientific method, and have, and they've been st- people are starting to point them out, right? And you know we're at this really interesting point in in the kind of future 
of um, scientific methodology. Because on one hand, you have, and I, you know, I don't agree with a lot of the things these guys do. They're in, in a lot of ways, they're just drawing attention to a conversation that mm. needs to happen that is happening on a more substantive level. But guys like Hancock and Sheldrake, when they had those TED talks banned or not banned or whatever right. the hell's going on with these, um, what, what it, to, in my estimation, what they're doing is bringing to light again. A set of questions that were brought up uh, back in the day by people like Carlos Castaneda, right? And and people dismiss Castaneda's research as legitimate or not or whatever. But the question remains, um, and this is at the very heart of what people experience through encountering psychedelics and, and in religion itself, but through the whole entheogen project. Um, and that is, are there certain things that are true? But that can only be experienced. That that can only be known through direct experience. So to understand what a shaman, what a, what a medicine person does, you can't just sit there with a clipboard and write it down. You actually have to go through initiation, or else you can't understand what they're doing. Um, if that's true, then that means that observation alone is not sufficient in order to under to understand and explain all forms, all states of consciousness right. and existence. Um, which on in and of itself doesn't sound like much, but if you if you grant that as a possibility, yeah. then that has all kinds of implications yeah. for scientific methodology. Um, the second question is this notion of consciousness: what is it? Where does it come from? Right? There are the physicalists who they've become, you know, they are now known, which uh, hold by the this Darwinian notion that consciousness is something that is an emergent property of matter. Right? That. You know, through billions of years, we we have you know uh, biological evolution, and inanimate matter organizes itself into more and more complex systems, and then once it hits a kind of tipping point, consciousness emerges in us, and that's it, right? That's what consciousness is. Um, but that's a pretty feeble understanding of consciousness and of the universe. Yeah, it's more a description than an explanation. Right. And it doesn't explain plant consciousness, which yeah. Michael Pollan has talked oh, so eloquently about. Yeah. 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 And many, and, and, uh, and Jeremy Narby's work, yeah. you know what I mean? It doesn't explain all kinds of shit. The other view says that consciousness, these are scientists now. These aren't religious people. These aren't, you know, because the intelligent design movement, you go find some guy with a PhD who's basically a Christian trying to find sciency sounding words in order to shoehorn God into the conversation. That's almost always what's going on in right. intelligent design. The consciousness set is not that. I mean, right. some of them are kind of new agey, but for the most part, these are real scientists, right? I mean, my friend Stephen Schwartz, for instance, right? These are people working with numbers. They're, they don't care about any of this hoo-ha stuff, right? They're not, they're not moved by anything but the actual data. Um, and the data seems to be taking them, especially as the, the findings in the quantum revolution are starting to mo- leave mathematics and physics and move into biology and psychology and um, study of religion, um, that consciousness might not be a, an emergent property of matter, but it might be a fundamental property of it, a primary pr- uh, property of it, and that, um, that consciousness is not some kind of... Um, bottom-up phenomena but a top-down and that these and they the the research seems to be going into this that's the notion of the study of non-locality right um and if that's these are sciencey ways of talking about god i mean they don't want to say that and that's why the phys and that's the the physicalist main argument back is you know you guys are talking about god again right and they and they are but they're not they're not talking about the god of the bible they're not talking about the god that watches you whacking off and and you know and writes it on a list and so you're going to go to hell they're not talking about anything relating to what we've been told in churches for all these years but right. they are hitting back at 
some kind of um, generative, uh, creative, purposeful energy that seems to be woven into the fabric of the cosmos that we're starting to be able to kind of detect. Now, the mystic has been, right, the guru, right, the, the legitimate ones, right? I mean, it's hard to tell who's legitimate, right? But the mystic it will tell you, of course, they, they've known this for centuries, right? But but I, I, I completely agree with you. Science is get, coming back to the, the question will be, can they come to the table? Um, there's lots of pitfalls here, right? Because every, there's, this is all very preliminary, right? And so a lot, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And people want to run forward with and make these kinds of grandiose claims and sell a DVD or a book or, or something um, before we know where this is going. But this needs spiritual people and mystics and, 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 and medicine people to come and, and share their wisdom. And this needs the scientific community to sort of open up um, its stranglehold on materialism right this idea that there only is the material and we won't even stand for the allowance of anything else on the one side you have to avoid um this kind of new age approach right where it just kind of spins so far away from the data that you know it, it becomes you know you know sedona and self-help kind of <laughs> right you know what i mean because because a lot of those people are kind of in the discussion right yeah. once you start talking about consciousness then there's gary zukov then the, you know what i mean then it's the open yeah. crew comes running forward deepak right. um but that's not where this need go, right? Those right. people are all there. And on the other side, religious people have to give up their stranglehold on the word God. Yeah. Right? Because they've it, the split in the sensibility since the Middle Ages where rationality is over here and intuition is over here, right? And if you have intuition, you're supposed to be a poet or an artist or something, right? But you're not supposed to use that in science. But all the great scientific breakthroughs... They'll right, tell back, you that. Yeah, yeah, that it came from a moment of intuition. Right, right. Drug-induced so, Sometimes not. drug-induced. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. We talked about that the other night. You know, when you were talking, I was reminded of two things. Um, one, the the sort of underlying motif of Joseph Campbell's work, yeah. which is that all these stories, these origin stories, and they're, they're all the same story. Mm-hmm. That's why it's the hero with a thousand faces. And the story is always that the young person who leaves his or her culture, normally it's a guy, but I'm sure there are exceptions, goes out into the world searching for something, mm-hmm. searching for knowledge, searching for the key to something, and goes through all these experiences that enlighten them and deepen them and, and, and are fascinating. You know, Odysseus is the one of the first examples of yeah. this. And then they return back home and mm-hmm. realize that what they were searching for has always been there, there where they left, right? It's always, right. they didn't, in a way, they had to do the journey yeah. to recognize it, but where they were going is where they left, right? Yeah. And I'm thinking about this in terms of science, mm-hmm. that it, it feels to me like we've turned a corner in, mm-hmm. in science, especially with quantum mechanics, as you're talking about. And it seems that now it's it's circling back to where it all started. Yeah. Right? And the other thing I was reminded of... It kind of had to separate itself, though, to, to grow, right, it, into the in, thing it's In that become, yeah. you know, prodigal son kind of, yeah. you know, yeah. replicating that pattern. And the other thing I was reminded of was a quote from, I think it was Richard Attenborough, the naturalist. Mm-hmm. Someone said to him, when did you first become interested in nature? 
And he said, the question's not when we become interested in nature, it's when we stop being interested yeah, in nature. Yeah, absolutely. All yeah. kids are fascinated. This is Picasso said all kids are born artists. The key is keeping them that way. Yeah, and right. we could say yeah. all kids are born mystics. All, mm-hmm. all kids are, are you know, gurus of some, because they're in touch. I remember my own childhood being mm-hmm. deeply in touch. All kids with, are born polyamorous, right? All kids are born into states of, of, right, of different boundaries entirely with yeah. one another in the natural world. And you know what else is really interesting? Kids. Kids, well, you've you've had kids, so maybe you know you know a lot more about this than I do. But I've read that kids are not born with a sense of disgust; mm. that it's learned, even for shit, even for you know whatever. It, like if you put roadkill in front of a baby, they'll just be interested by it, no matter how bad it stinks. And what that our sense of disgust is cultural. Really interesting, you know, so discuss for other people, for other habits, for Uh various food, you know, you think about foods that disgust you and me, people are eating them all over the place. Yeah, this really hit home to me when I saw there was this guy in New York that gives human breast milk cheese out to to people that come into his (laughs) restaurant. He can't sell it, but he gives it out. And I always show this to students about how powerful cultural coding is, right? Right. Because everybody in the room, including Ah. me, says, I'm not eating titty cheese. There's no way I'm eating that, right? (laughs) Right? Um, Give me some cheddar or something, and it's fine. Now, here's the the, the irony there. It's cow titty cheese. Cow titty cheese. (laughs) And we're the only animal dumb enough to eat the milk of other animals. No other animal does that. So the disgusting thing is actually eating the cheddar. Right. Right? That's the actual disgusting thing. Because no no one eating the the milk. Fucking Velveeta, man. Yeah, eating yeah. the milk from a human animal. I'm a human animal, so right. why does that disgust me? But even but even telling myself that, yeah. there's no damn way I'm eating the titty cheese. Right? Yeah. I, I mean, I just for some reason it seems gross to me. And then the other thing is, you go, oh, I don't. That seems. Who knows what's in that? <laughs> like, like anything that you got from craft has yeah. cockroaches in it, yeah. and not like 18 different kinds of poison. Right? Yeah. But we've just been coded. Right, it's to, amazing yeah, how yeah. deep into our minds the fingers of culture can reach. Isn't yeah, it? no kidding. Yeah, man. yeah. What were you telling me the other day? I've got to piss like a racehorse, so we're going to have yeah, to yeah. wrap this up here. But yeah, yeah. you were telling me some story the other day about going to a bakery. With the erotic bakery. The, er- yeah. the erotic bakery. Yeah, yeah. Can you, can you tell that story? Yeah, oh, this was great, man. So I, uh, I took my kids to Seattle, and there's an erotic bakery up there. Um, and we, it's in uh, the Ballard neighborhood. And I was taking them out to the locks to show them. I was just trying to be a good dad. You know, divorced dad, you're trying to be cool, right? And they were about, uh, oh, God, must have been 13 and 10 at the time. My son's older. And uh, my daughter's 10, would have been 10 at the time, I think, right right in there, maybe a little bit younger. And, you know, I always had this notion with human sexuality or any question that they were old enough, when they were old enough uh, to ask questions about something, they were, I wasn't going to force anything on them, but if they were asking me about things, I would answer them. Uh, I'd, you know, when when their mother and I got divorced, I had moved downtown to downtown Portland, and (coughs) they were visiting me once, and we came outside, and there was a parade going on. And my, you know, they were like six, seven years old at the time, and they go running up, oh, parade, parade, and I had no idea it was Pride Parade, <laughs> right? And so we get to the, you know, to the line, and the float goes by, and I remember my son turns around, and there's these women, like n- naked but painted up in silver paint and stuff, and the float was called Techno Dykes, <laughs> and he goes, Dad, what's a Techno Dyke? <laughs> and the only thing I could think to say was they're 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 people who they're women who are like your father. They really like women and computers, <laughs> right? I mean. And he was like, oh, cool. And that was it. But uh, that's a techno dyke, right? I guess. I don't know. Or they're into techno music, New Order or something. But uh, so we're in Seattle and we're driving by the Erotic Bakery. 
and they said they wanted to go in. Um, so I wasn't sure if they could or not, right? So I, I, I pulled the car over and went in and asked the guy if kids were allowed, and he said that they're you know a functioning bakery that anybody that you could bring people in as long as they were with an adult, it was fine. Um, so they come in and we're looking at the you know they're they're going around and looking at the cakes, they're looking at all the stuff, and they go to the window of cupcakes and they they both said they want a cupcake, right? And again, I'm just I'm explaining anything to them, man. So I'm not offering too much information, letting them kind of giggle and deal with it. I think we're the only people in the place at that time. Um, typical Seattle dude behind the counter, you know what I mean? Like a Nirvana shirt on, you know, <laughs> giant earrings and a bunch of tattoos and stuff, and um. So they're looking in the case, and my daughter immediately points to this cupcake with this giant black penis in it, right? And she goes, I want that one, right? <laughs> and again, I, you know, hey, man, um, I don't know how what, what that is. Maybe she just liked chocolate. Portent yeah. of the future. Yeah, I don't know what's going on, but uh, but cool. What I, whatever they wanted, they were going to get within reason in terms of the food products, at least. Um, so I, you know, bought her the chocolate. I got, picked the, uh, the black penis cupcake. And then my son's looking at the other side, and I didn't direct them towards... I don't know if they have hetero you know and, and picking the penis cupcake doesn't mean she's going to grow up to like dudes i mean that's right. just like you know but i had no direction in this i just wanted to see where they would go i didn't direct him it's towards like the female ones test. yeah i just said hey i just kind of followed them through the place <laughs> so my son goes up to the cabinet with the with the female bits um and uh and i see him kind of looking down and he goes i'll you know i'll take uh, i want that one and he's whispering right and uh, he's gonna kill me for telling the story good thing you know <laughs> who listens to this yeah, couple million people right right um <laughs> we'll change the names to protect the innocent uh and he says i want that one and and i and i know what he's pointing at and i said the boobs and he goes no <laughs> the other one <laughs> and i said hey man and i'm again i'm thinking i'm trying to turn this into a teaching moment and i don't want to embarrass him but i was like if you can't say the word you can't have the thing like <laughs> It's not fucking Voldemort, dude. It's not like you. You can say the word, you know, Beetlejuice. Like you're like you know, and because I'm, I'm also trying to hear what if he's going to say pussies. You know, I don't know what he's going to say, right? But he's going that one, and I think there's something to this. I think young men are coded to to be. Um, simultaneously obsessed and afraid of the vagina, right? And they they fucking think about nothing else, but they won't even name it, right? Or they call it pussy. And it's like a, it's like an element, you know what I mean? Mm. But like Louis C.K. says, pussy. It's not even like Sally's pussy. It's just like pussy, you right. know what I mean? Like right. it's just in the air. And uh, it's so impersonal, right? And so I wanted him to, to, to embody it and go say what it is you want, boy, right? And uh, so he goes, vagina, right? And he was all, you know, Eve Ensler would have been proud of me, right? I made him say it and uh so then we got we got the two and um we take them up you to the front. Get one? no 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 i, uh, I have a sugar yeah. thing right uh, hey. <laughs> <laughs> i got a you know <laughs> i got some other stuff right. pocket pussy for dad right. <laughs> <laughs> um and so i took them up to the front and uh the guy you know the guy starts wrapping them in these nice pink boxes which again now as i say that i hear the third layer of the funny in this uh <laughs> Right, but each each cupcake's being put in this great little pink box, and he's got ribbon on it, and he's doing that thing with the scissor. Oh, yeah, right, where he winds right. the fucking thing, you know. And I go, Jesus, this is like a whole Fancy. production for yeah. this cupcake, right? Uh, and he puts them each in the box, and he has the lids open, and right before he closes the lids, right, and I'm thinking I've made it through this thing with you know little, you know, I'm trying to be super dad. you know, I'm uh, divorced, and I want to be cool, but not too cool, right? And uh, uh, right before he closes the lid, he looks up at us and he goes. Uh, you guys want to come on these? <laughs> 
Right, and and our faces just went. I mean, and I, I immediately I'm thinking this thing just kicked up a notch. This was like now I'm going to go. Now I'm going to jail, right? Yeah. Like now these kids are going to go home and uh, tell their mother so, what's going uh, on. And uh, and shit. I just went from being cool, adventurous, progressive dad to you know statutory kind of eighteen to twenty. Yeah. I don't know. Creepy. I'm thinking the guy from you know Dateline's going to come yeah. in. And, uh, why don't you have a seat over here? You know, why don't you? What are you doing here? You know, I'm standing there with my six pack of beer and you know, yeah. but uh, and I go. Nah, man. And then he sees the terror on her face, right? And uh, and my kids were both kind of shocked. And the dude's gonna try to try to smooth it over. And he goes, "Hey, man, it's not real cum." Right? <laughs> and I go, "Yeah, dude. I didn't think you were gonna jizz on our food, you know." And he goes, "It's just whipped cream." And I go, "Yeah, I know. It just kind of shocked me." And then he go, and then he said the best part of the whole thing. He goes, "Hey, man, you brought him in here. I'm required to ask that of everybody." <laughs> and then, yeah. And then I thought, what kind of food service job? Must there be where that's the question that's required? I mean, that must be the only job in the country where Do you're you giving people food and asking yeah. them at the same time, Do you want come on this? <laughs> and imagine, like, he gets. I'm not saying it's the only job where there is come on the food, no, right? I'm saying it's the only job not. where you ask the people if they want And, and the yeah. dude loses his job and he starts working at Denny's and yeah. out of habit. He's <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, right. The waffles? Yeah, yeah. Do you want come? Oh, gee, never mind. Oh, the never Grand mind. Slam. <laughs> <laughs> want come on these? Duh. <laughs> so your kids knew what come was, I guess. Well, that, yeah, see, that's that we didn't get into it right yeah. we actually got in the car and had about like 30 minutes of awkward silence right <laughs> and then the great thing is is they eat the cupcakes right and uh uh and my son ate because the, the the you know the the genitalia is edible it's made out of like some kind of colored chocolate right and so my son eats the whole thing i don't know if he went pussy first or saved it last i don't know i didn't watch him eat it but like the, the fucking thing was empty and in about 12 seconds right i don't I, I'd, I'd like to ask him which one went first if he if he went right out the pussy right. or saved it to you finish right the cake yeah. right right i mean because that's really interesting uh but uh my daughter eats the cupcake and then hands me the box right and i open it up and there's just the black dick still <laughs> in the box like a like a crime scene you know what i mean like just the dick right and, and then i'm like do you want me to save this you know what i mean i don't know what to do right like Dicks i mean for you dad yeah, right? yeah yeah like and i'm i'm thinking i you know i don't want to throw it out but then i'm not just how do you reach in the box and just grab the dick you know what i mean and it's got just a little bit of the cake frosting on it oh, which my. wasn't gross when it was in the cake but now i'm just no. touching in it. it's wet and there's just a wet dick in the box yeah i'm not going near it. yeah I think those guys stole that from me, actually. Yeah, exactly. yeah, if you know somebody that can give me a, some yeah, residuals a for that. Yeah. Need a cut. Take a, Justin, I know Justin listens. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure yeah. he does. Man. All right, I have to take a piss, and we've gone for two hours. I, I could talk a lot longer. Uh, we, I want to get, if we do this again, I, I want to get from, you know, you're in the band to how you got here, teaching. And, yeah, you know, man. A responsible adult and all that. It's a wild Pretty ride. Pretty amazing, yeah. Thanks a lot, man. This, it's been this awesome. It's been great. Yeah, yeah, this has been way fun, Chris. And anything you want to cut, we can cut. <laughs> <laughs> Just the first two hours. <laughs>
Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.